0: Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this very, very special spoiler podcast dedicated to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. It's taken a while to get here, yes, but now as the film is out on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital HD, I hope you'll agree it's been worth the wait. Usually, our spoiler specials include an interview with the director of the movie in question, followed by a roundtable discussion between a few Empire writers. Now, we've only got one of those here today, the interview with the director, but what an interview it is, if I I do say so myself. A few weeks ago, Christopher McQuarrie, the writer and director of the fifth Mission Impossible movie, for that is, of course, what Rogue Nation is, popped into our pod booth to discuss the film's ins and outs, its ups and downs, and its twists and turns. We'd scheduled 45 minutes for this, but he ended up chatting for close to three hours, three hours, about all things Rogue Nation, from its genesis to a detailed dissection of key scenes and characters, And loads of skinny on the scenes that didn't make the final cut. It's not just an essential interview if you're a fan of Ethan Hunt and his impossible missioning. It's an essential interview if you wanted to know about screenwriting from one of the very best in the business. The Oscar winning screenwriter of The Usual Suspects to name but one. Right, that's enough blathering for me. As usual... Do not go any further if you haven't seen Mission Impossible Rogue Nation or if you don't want to know what happens in the film because we discussed it in forensic detail. But right now, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to sit back, relax, and for the next two and a half hours or so, because yes, we did cut one or two things out, enjoy the soothing sounds of Christopher McQuarrie while some simpering idiot tries to interject with a question every now and again. Enjoy. Uh, We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the writer and director of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Christopher McQuarrie. How are you, sir?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm very good. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Now, you're a few months down the line. The film is out in cinemas. Um, I saw it again recently. At uh, the only cinema in London still playing the movie. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Only in Panton Street on a, on a Saturday night. Still had a decent crowd. You'd be glad to know. On a four foot by <laughs> On three a four foot, foot screen. screen. Yeah. <laughs> still. Yeah. Still the impact comes across. Yeah. Um, now that you've had some time to reflect, uh, how does the film hold up? Have you seen the film recently?
1: What um. Some- I haven't seen it too recently. We we I think the last time I saw it from beginning to end was in Korea. Okay. When we were promoting it in Korea, it was on the largest movie screen in the world, which was obscenely large. It was a thousand foot, a thousand seat auditorium. All right, a thousand foot. Yes, a thousand foot. It was a jumbotron. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I and I think we had enough distance from it that we were we were able to start to enjoy the movie. But yeah, I I, I feel I don't know I feel really good about it.
0: Fantastic, uh, because obviously. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but the the ending of the movie it was it, it was made in such a tight time frame. Yeah, how long was it before the movie was out? Did you were actually finish? Was it um, a matter of days? Or?
1: We finished the film five days before the premiere, and I I, I think uh, there was actually one more tweak or something that we did at some time after that. I, I remember that that Tom didn't see the finished movie until the premiere.
0: Wow, okay. So a yeah. bit, bit too late for notes. <laughs> <was>
1: very very <laughs> too late. Well, that was the scary thing. The, 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 the last thing we finished was the Taurus, the underwater sequence. Right. And uh, because of the amount of effects and the amount of digital work that went into it, there was the, the very last refined, polished moment where something really stood out, uh, we gave notes on it and had to walk away hoping that they would that they would finish it to our satisfaction.
0: Wow, okay. Um,
1: and sure enough,
0: they did. I mean, that, that, that sequence is uh, is a, a fascinating one. So let's start with that. I was going to start with the ending, which is also, in a way, starting with the beginning yes. of the film. But uh, let's talk about the Taurus sequence, uh, first of all, before we get into uh, some other stuff. Uh, because when you come up with a heist sequence in a Mission Impossible movie, mm-hmm. you have the ghosts of Mission Impossible movies past, mainly, right. of course, the uh, the Langley heist in the, in the first movie. Yes. So can you talk about this sequence, where it came from? and uh, and how difficult it was to put together
1: uh it came together starting with jim bissell the production designer who had put together uh well you know we put together a board we had kind of a, a, a preliminary war room and a trailer on the paramount lot and he had put together kind of a, a just an overall look of the movie and a lot of what he was throwing up there was just spitballing ideas and one of the things was he found this Taurus, Mm. which of course is not actually filled with water. (laughs) And, uh, it has something to do with, something to do with electricity and some, I can't remember what the actual space did, but he rendered it filled with water. And we had discussed an underwater sequence. We, we had discussed it in, in something where in order to escape from something, they had to flood it to get out. And it was never, you know, purposely going into an underwater space. Jim filled this thing with water in the images, and Cruz took one look at it, and he went, oh, cool, we're doing an underwater sequence? <laughs> and I, of course, was not fully committed to that idea because we had we had worked in a tank on Edge of Tomorrow, which was absolutely miserable work. Sure. I, had the, I had the pleasure, uh, the education of working a lot of splinter unit for Doug Lyman when we did pickups on that movie. So I had a little bit of firsthand knowledge of what working in the tank was and didn't want to do it ever again. Uh, but now the cat was out of the bag so it, it it that that the notion of what that heist was evolved over time and i remember for example we originally tom was it, it was the langley sequence in that tom had to go in and get something and get out yeah he was getting the object they were after and we pre vised it that way with the idea that it would all be a wonder and and the reason was completely practical it mm-hmm. wasn't masturbatory, which I think a lot of oneers are, it was the, it, I knew that it took so long to shoot underwater that if I was trying to shoot a lot of complex coverage, it was going to compound the number of days I had to spend in the tank. They sure. were only giving me 10 days. Okay. So I realized, wow, if I do this all in oneers, I can get 20 setups in 10 days and I'm actually ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So we designed this this whole thing as a Warner we pre it very carefully and there were wipes and 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 panaways and all these things would allow us to stitch all these shots together seamlessly and it it they pre visited it it was really quite beautiful and my problem watching it was there are no stakes here the stakes are strictly for Tom mm. they're strictly Ethan's stakes he's going in there and he's saving himself mm. but it's just it's just not working mm. So I came up with the idea that actually Benji was retrieving the object of the plot and Tom was going into underwater to make sure that Benji could pass cleanly through whatever, whatever it was he had to do. And that was a real struggle for us all the way to the very end. Tom knew emotionally that that was the right thing to do. And on the other hand, he really loved this idea based on the previous of doing. This incredibly complex oneer yeah. that was gonna be a single take of Tom underwater for, you know, three and a half, four minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which would have involved him doing close to that for many of the takes. Wow. And uh, and I and I watched him struggle with it right up to the very end and he just we we actually cut together a version of it like that. And he watched it and he, he wanted it so bad and he just went, <laughs> Story is king, man. It just doesn't work. It's not as it's not as strong.
0: Okay, and was the idea always that Ethan would "quote unquote" die at the end of that sequence and would be rescued by Ilsa? Yeah, that like came him?
1: that came pretty early on that yeah. he was that he was going to drown. We thought, well, if we're going to call it Mission Impossible, one of the missions should be impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so the idea of him having to die in order to catch the villain was a was a very appealing idea early on, prior to. Uh, I, I, prior to our having it be drowned or whatever else, it was like he had to push himself to the absolute limit in order
0: to catch. this. Okay, so you have other elements as well in a Mission Impossible heist. And uh, these days, for anyone writing a heist sequence, we obviously have all these high tech gadgets and, and whatnot. But uh, you know, everything's been done before. Essentially, mm-hmm. a pressure sensitive floor, or a, a temp- you know, the room, the, temp- the, the temperature of the room. Mm-hmm. You have to raise it down to a certain level. All which you know, I guess was done in the first possible um, here you have the gate analysis yes uh, where did that come from
1: that came from a, uh, a technical advisor who was actually he was related to a crew member from another film I had worked on and we he designs security and and we went through a very complex description of what a, a skiff is a real thing it's not that sophisticated what it is, is it's a it's a repository where they hold, um, you know, four different intelligence organizations will all have their drives in this one facility, but those facilities will be compartmentalized for each sure. intelligence organization, and they're all stored offline. And the combination dials was a little reference to that. You have to go through so many combination dials. Mm. One of the things that was too detailed to get into, the combination dials are smart dials, and they know... When if you're going too fast, it knows it, it assumes you're a machine. If you're going too fast and too smooth. If you're going too slow, it assumes you're reading off of a piece of paper. Right. And it locks you out. Right. So so you have to go in and be as human as you can while you're opening these locks, or the locks smell something fishy and say, no, you're not, not allowed in. And you have to go through like eight of these to get to the drive oh my that God. you want. So it's incredibly complicated. And part of the thing he was describing to me in in all of that was gate analysis. And I knew, oh, well, that's perfect because that's a thing where even a mask, an IMF mask, can't beat yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of took the IMF mask and flushed it away.
0: So when you're starting uh, a Mission Impossible movie, or even when you're parachuted into one halfway through, as you were on the Ghost Protocol, yeah. um, is there a list of things that you have to take off? Okay, we have to have a sequence with a mask, we have to have a high sequence.
1: The only thing that was really on the list of things that you had to do in the movie is Ethan has to get a mission. Mm-hmm. Like, that is really the language of the movie. The, the recording and the good evening, Mr. Hunt. Um, that was the only thing Tom ever really insisted you had to have in the movie. <laughs> right. And there were many times when I, when I, when it, 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 that scene was very problematic because just the movie, just the, the beginning of the movie kept growing bigger uh-huh. and bigger and bigger. And I had one idea, which was the movie starts with the mission. It mm-hmm. starts with a blank screen and good evening, Mr. John. Like the retinal scan scans you and you're Ethan's point of view. Okay. And you're just parachuted into the mission. And Tom just said, it's not, he, Tom was fine with the idea, but he was just like, it's not the say. It's, you want Ethan Hunt there. You want the self-destruct. You want the tape recorder melting. You want that kind of. It's, it's, that was the one thing where he was like, no, this is what it's got to be in A Mission Impossible. Everything else, you're kind of given carte blanche, which is a nightmare because you. I, I actually work better with lots and lots of boundaries. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It forces you to be more creative, and, and I'd rather somebody else create the limitations than me create them. It, mm. we, when you give me limitations, I'm constantly trying to find creative ways to get around them. <laughs> okay. You forget that all of the rules exist because you created them mm-hmm. there there are no rules on page one yeah. but by page 30 you're in a very complicated world of rules that that, that you have created and f- you almost forget that you that you did <laughs> yes so you have to be you have to be flexible enough to go back and reverse engineer you come to a place where you go wow it'd be great if this happened but it conflicts all these other rules I've created do uh-huh. I change my great idea or do I change all the rules I've created? And that's a lot of what the process of making Mission Impossible is. What do you normally do? Uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and go, "God, I'm an idiot because I I forgot I created that rule." You, you no matter how many times you learn the lesson, you forget it, and you're you're you're, you're it's so inside your own head, you forget that that the possibilities are limitless. And and that was really the problem with the end of the movie. Mm. We had convinced ourselves. That the movie needed to end on a certain note with a certain sense of scale, and we were killing ourselves trying to deliver that ending, uh, and that was one of the reasons why it took so long to figure out what the ending was.
0: Because the ending was initially a version of the beginning of the pre-credit sequence with the A four hundred.
1: That was one idea. Okay. What what we knew what we knew was we wanted. Tom and I looked at Ghost Protocol and uh, we ca- you know Tom had uh, Tom had one thing where he, he that the burge was so great and he thought, wouldn't it be awesome if we could have a movie that ended with the biggest sequence of the movie? Mm-hmm. That was kind of an early suggestion. That was not a rule. that was just something somebody said in a room which over time became a rule. So we were trying to come up with the biggest sequence to end the movie. And after the opera and the motorcycle chase and the Taurus, mm. we were like, "What is that even?" And the A four hundred we knew was the stunt. Um, and I, I kept arguing that that's what it was—that the A four hundred was a stunt. Mm-hmm. It's not a sequence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that to make it a sequence, you needed to involve the team. It needed to be. It needed to involve the villain. It needed to be a much bigger thing. It needed to be more integrated into the story. Sure. And in doing that, the sequence uh, invariably cost $20 million more because of all the bodies you had to involve and the things you had to build. The sequence that we shot involved no construction of any fake wing or anything. Tom just jumped on the wing of the plane, jumped off the plane. We just used a real plane. We didn't have to build anything. (laughs) The minute you start a car chasing the plane, you had to build like a chunk of the plane and a wing. and it's cost millions of dollars more. And all those actors needed to be there. it was very complicated and David Ellison came to Morocco at one point and we really we really had a we, we had like a five hour meeting okay where it was you know we're not leaving this room without a decision on this and finally David said, "Look you can't it's the biggest stunt in the movie. it needs to be in the biggest sequence in the movie and the biggest sequence needs to be at the end and I said, "What do you care?" <laughs> It's going to be in the trailer 500. Everyone's going to see it 500 times. What does it matter where it goes in the movie? And David sort of blinked when I said that. He was like, oh, yeah. So I just said, let's just look, I can save $20 million. Let's just uh-huh. put it at the beginning of the film and kind of get it out there. Have fun with this sequence and not burden it with all of the. Because every time I sat down to write that sequence, it was not writing it was typing you were just like (laughs) and and movie stuff happens and oh and it's zero g and the girls in peril and all this and it it ran into all of these other rules which to tom and i were sacred yeah the big one being rebecca ferguson can never be the woman in peril uh or rather ilsa because we didn't even know who rebecca was at that point sure um and that was a that was a lesson that we carried over from edge of tomorrow
0: yeah Absolutely. Uh, so, so you you put it at the beginning of the film, and I really like the fact it's at the beginning of the film because it, it was so prevalent in the marketing materials. It was there in the trailer. It was yes. the poster, and you watch the film. You sit down, and you watch it, and it's at the very very beginning. And then you think, oh, I don't know where this film's going now. It's not. It's not building. <laughs> which is
1: exactly which is, yeah,
0: <laughs> which is perhaps the feeling you still had as well. I don't know where this film's well, going. Well, that
1: was another <laughs> yeah. Tom Tom mandate. Uh, this is a typical Tom mandate. He's. I, I said because Tom speaks to me in in feelings. He he speaks to me in terms of emotions. He's looking to capture not, you know. I got to have a sequence like this, and you know, all mo- all mission movies have to be this. There isn't a Tom Cruise movie rule book. Sure. Tom's whole thing is what he wants you to experience when you watch the film, and he said, I want the audience to have some sense of what it's like for us to make a movie. I want that kind of experience. That's what I want the team going through. Because he, in retrospect, we think it's enormously funny when we look back on how insane it is, the process of
3: sure yeah. two of
1: us making movies. And, and that's that's an easy thing to say. That's a hard thing to do. And what I learned at the end of a very long process was not to literally pursue those notes, but just to, you have them in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. They, they influence the subconscious. And lo and behold, it kind of turns out that way. Whenever I pursue his emotional notes directly,
3: yeah,
1: I end up in a corner. I end up with. I end up creating rules. Yes. Whereas when I go, okay, that's a good vibe to kind of be thinking of while I'm writing a scene that gets me from point A to point B, it comes together. the The, the confrontation with Lane at the end, sitting at that table in a restaurant, it took us months to figure out, and and to to accept that that's what the ending was. And yet, we, while we were shooting it, Tom and I looked at each other and was like, it was like a year and a half ago we were talking about a scene like this for the opening of the movie. And we had rejected it okay. for, for a whole bunch of reasons. Okay. So everything that Tom and I wanted to do ultimately made it into the movie, but only after we let it go, only after we weren't trying to get it in there. And mm-hmm. and that's, that's what you're seeing in the movie. There's virtually nothing in the film, with the exception of maybe the opera mm-hmm. and the and the motorcycle portion of the of the chase mm-hmm. that were you know big things where we said boom this is what's going to be in the movie.
0: Okay, so it's it, it's more of a it finds a way into the film eventually. Mm-hmm. So so the 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 uh, the A four hundred sequence uh, had you really gone down that road had you story had you, had you got as far as scripting a, a, a larger version with with all the team and with solomon lane and, and the,
1: yeah i scripted it and it was the end of one of the fast and furious movies i mean it was it, it truly it was a plane going down the runway and there was a car trying to stop it and they drove a suv into one of the propellers and <laughs> it was all of this stuff that you had seen done in other movies and Done at night with lots of special effects, and mm-hmm. kind of you know, and the runway was twelve thousand miles long, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and it just didn't, it didn't, it it wasn't Mission Impossible, okay. and and we have sort of a card catalog of of ideas that are yeah, that's a perfectly good idea, but that belongs in another franchise. It's just not mission. And that was a that might as well have been a T-shirt that we were wearing throughout the movie. It's just not mission. And it wasn't, it wasn't to say, because I love those movies. I think they're a lot of fun. They understand their tone and they know exactly who they're speaking to. Yeah. I'm not criticizing those movies at all. There's stuff that they can do that if I did it, I'd be doing just the bad version of what they do. It's like, that's a, you know, I it's it's it, I look at, at those films and go I oh, God I don't know how they do that I don't I don't know how on earth they manage all of that I know Neil Moritz. he's he, Neil Moritz and I have kids who go to school together okay and I see Neil Moritz at, at at Nate Nails in uh, in Los Angeles this deli kind of a central and every time I see him I could tell when he's working on Asteroid Furious because you could just see him just like <laughs> uh, yeah we're I gotta move seven supercars to south america and, you know it's just they're so exhausting and they're so overwhelming and i don't know how he does it and he looks at me and he's like i don't know how you do that i don't know what, how you do what you do
0: <laughs> it's not bad it's not bad uh that'd be an interesting conversation to eavesdrop on but um but going back to the very very beginning then page one you yeah. have a mission impossible movie how do you go about it
1: darn good question oh, for me my my breakdown of it was that the, the opening sequence itself, and it's the hardest thing to do, harder than f- closing the movie was opening it. I looked at all the other four movies and, uh, looked at them not in terms of comparison, but in terms of, okay, what's the, what's the rule that these four movies have introduced? Mm-hmm. And the rule seemed to be that the sequence is immediately self-evident. The movie opens with sequences in which I'm not explaining a lot of rules. I don't need to hear the dialogue. I kinda know what that is. There's a jailbreak, there's a mountain climbing sequence, there's a uh, there's a mouse mousetrap m- trap at the mm-hmm. beginning of mission one. Mm-hmm. Um, mission three has it's it couldn't be any simpler. It's a guy tied to a chair and another guy pointing a gun at his wife's head saying, I'm gonna count to ten. Yeah. Um you know, those are those are all scenes that are very visceral, they're not plotty. They're there's they're 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 indicating a plot that you're gonna find out about after the credits. And that's the hardest thing in the world to do. <laughs> it's especially hard when somebody's already done a heist and a mousetrap and a jailbreak. And yeah. And, and, a big, and so that was another reason where I just kept railing against the 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 information that was being conveyed in the A four hundred sequence. Mm-hmm. Which is why when you when you get there, the A400, there's very little in terms of what it has to do with the plot of the movie. It's more about yeah. visually you understand there's some kind of terrible chemical weapon on the plane and it's and the plane can't take off. I, I, everything they're talking about are the stakes of the scene, mm-hmm. not the greater plot of the movie. Because I don't want the audience feeling like they have to pay attention as they're settling into the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah, you just want that scene to kind of wash over them. That's why Ghost Protocol's is because great – opening of the movie you have this sort of visceral scene with a guy running and being chased off the roof of a building and shooting some people and getting killed and you know that's going to come back to you and then there's a jailbreak Mm. so for the first 10 minutes of the movie you're just you're just watching events unfold um coming up with a unique sequence in which events just unfold is very very
0: challenging so uh obviously it came about because tom glanced at a you actually said to Tom that you looked at the Model DA400 and you went, okay.
1: Yeah, Jim Bissell had brought the model in as a as a suggestion of something to use somewhere in the movie. And I half-jokingly said, yeah, we, we could have the, that thing take off and you could be on it. And he, was, he said, yeah, all right, I can. <laughs> uh, and we were in a room full of people and they immediately began dialing phones and calling Airbus. And <laughs> Airbus, was, Airbus just sort of laughed at us. They, just, they were like, no, that's never going to happen. Uh, and we just kept at them. Um, and they, they eventually, they, then they started, they, they saw that we were not crazy, crazy. We were just crazy. They, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it wasn't suicidal crazy. We were just, that's not advisable crazy. <laughs> and they started to get into the engineering. And that, I think that's it. Once you sort of ignite somebody's passion, uh, and they start to look at it in terms of, well, if we were going to do it, how would we do it? And that's, that's what starts you down that slippery path to, now, all of a sudden, Tom Cruise is strapped to the side of the plane. And there was a moment, I remember, when they came running out on the runway just before we were going to take off. And they had another A400 decal that nice. they wanted to put right next to Tom. Uh-huh. And they they had been so accommodating. And anything that they had asked, I said, absolutely. And they came out with a sticker, and I just said, no. no. And they said, well, we, we want to make sure that people can see that it's an A400. I said, guys, everyone on planet Earth is going to know <laughs> that this is an A400. You do not need to stick a four hundred on there. I I'm not going to put an ad in the close up of my shot. And we took off. And the next day, in the sun, there was the first leaked image from yeah. the movie yeah. with, and you could see a four hundred. And they brought the paper to me, and they said, "You weren't kidding." Like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
0: It's, it's yeah, the title of Joe Kramer's uh, score as well. That, that particular track, yes. So yes. Right, there it is. Um, but it's it's such an iconic sequence, and you're you're right. It, it leaked. There were paparazzi on. On set, I've re I've read a comments board where people go, oh, "No, it, it's it's fake. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's fake." But there are shots of Tom doing it, which is there's kind yes, of, there's GoPro footage of absolutely. Tom. Miller.
1: I've I've learned a valuable lesson, and so has Tom. Uh, what we're talking about now, because not only is some of the GoPro stuff, uh, it's it's so much clearer, and you know that it's that it's real. Mm-hmm. They actually get some really cool angles. Uh, <laughs> And I I got over the fear of of sort of mixing media in this movie. There are there are uh, mini cams and GoPro camera shots in the movie. There's all kinds of stuff. It just if you don't linger on it very long, you sure. can get away with it. And Tom and I are saying whatever the next big stunt is and whatever movie we're doing, don't hide it. Right away, just you know, the, the, as soon as you do it, put it on the web and it's like give give a sneak peek of what are they doing, what are they building in there. <laughs> uh (laughs) but also to incorporate that stuff into the movie i felt like the uh the splinter unit guy or the uh the the epk guys where they managed to get their cameras they were going to places where i couldn't get right uh a a, you know uh, i couldn't get a camera crew up there but these guys with their little
3: yeah
1: with a little lumix were getting these really great shots and i'm going to fold them into whatever i do next they're very it's very effective
0: fantastic and uh it's a a dangerous thing as well, though, I guess, having Tom Cruise. As you said there, he comes in... He it's
1: a dangerous thing having Tom Cruise. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, let me, let me explain. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, you look at a... He looks at an underwater shot and he goes, okay, we're doing an underwater sequence. He looks mm-hmm. at a model of a plane and he goes, I can climb on the side of that. Uh, at one point we were joking on the Empire podcast when the... Uh, the first images came up of him clinging to the side of the plane. Yeah, you know, basically, if you if you suggest anything
1: to him that sounds dangerous, will he do it? Oh, uh, rattlesnake down my pants? Absolutely, <laughs> I will do that. But it's, well, they, that's just <laughs> it. That's just it. Because Tom, if if you said, "Hey, rattlesnake down my pants," Tom would go, "Okay, how do we know it's my pants? Like, how are you going <laughs> to shoot it? Because I don't want to stick a rattlesnake down my pants and just have it be an insert of my leg when it could just be anybody's leg." Sure, sure. For Tom, it is about when when you present a stunt to him tom is saying how can we shoot in a way that people really know it's me mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because if i'm wearing a helmet on the motorcycle just put somebody else on the motorcycle and then why put anybody on the motorcycle
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you're not connected to the character anymore it's like you got to see my eyes and you got to know that it's me or else it's not worth doing so that's that is the dividing line. When we come up with stunt sequences, you can't imagine the number of times I, I brought a lot of writers onto the project, uh, you know, uh, at one time or another, just to like spitball ideas. And it became this running joke: is you put a writer in a room for, for ten hours, and he would come to you with a squirrel, scu- a squirrel suit sequence. <laughs> that was the first thing in everybody's mind. Like, I got it. It's Tom in a squirrel suit. And we're like, great. So what's he wearing on his head? it's like, well, he's got a helmet on. so it's not Tom. It's just a guy in a squirrel suit. And where's the camera? It's either strapped to his chest yeah. or it's on the ground watching him speed past at 200 miles an hour. Yeah. It's not a sequence. It's a, it's a Red Bull video, <laughs> uh, with just any guy. So no, can't do a squirrel suit. But then, of course, Cruz, you see the gears starting to turn. He was like, well, actually, I could, you know, there's a way I could do it. And David Ellison stepped in. He's like, I know the three best guys in the entire world and, One of them's not quadriplegic now. (laughs) No, he did not really, but one of these guys, they showed us a video of one of these guys hitting the top of a mountain that he was supposed to fly three feet over. And it was like, yeah. And, and by the way, he was wearing a helmet. So you couldn't tell it was him. So we evaluated that and just said, there's not, there's not a way that you can extend tension or suspense within that sequence. They really work within these kind of real world clips. But what the heck is the sea? It's again, it's not a sequence. It's a stunt.
0: Okay, obviously. But I'm, I'm just leaving it out there. Rattlesnake down the pants. I'm
1: just, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest it. And, but, but here's the thing with a rattlesnake. All you have to do is take the fangs and the venom out and everybody, that's what everybody's gonna say. So, you know, unless you can see the snake in (laughs) one, in one take, like kill a rabbit and then climb down Tom's pants.
0: It's how it's doing. <laughs> it's worth doing. It's worth considering. Um, yes. But uh, so you said you brought a lot of writers on the spitball, and obviously yeah. Drew Pierce started off as the writer on the project. Yes. Um, how different was Drew's draft from what we see now?
1: Um, you know, it was it was different in that it was, uh, I would say the big difference was there There was another, we had this idea of bringing back a multi-generational IMF. Mm-hmm. That we had a, it, we, there, there was, if you go back and watch the original show, before Jim Phelps, there was Dan Briggs. Mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm. a real fan of the show, mm-hmm. the, the, Peter Graves was season two. Mm-hmm. The first season was Stephen Hill. Okay. And, uh, Stephen Hill's great story. He was, um, Orthodox Jewish and would not work on Saturdays. <laughs> and nice, as yeah. a result, it became harder and harder to schedule the show because uh-huh. he was very devout. And, More and more of the episodes were him setting up the mission and then saying, and of course I'm personally involved with so and so, so I will not be with you on this mission. And there was all this exposition of why he wasn't actually in the show, which was all to cover up the fact that Stephen Hill couldn't work that day. So Stephen Hill had to be replaced with Peter Graves. And we had this idea that since Jim Phelps had gotten spun out and bumped off in the first movie. Sure. That what if we brought back this other guy, this sort of legendary guy who vanished? years and years before. Uh, And it was my first lesson about writing these movies, which was just, you know, the clever tangent. And the amount of page space that this this sucked up that had nothing to do with your protagonist or with the woman with whom he had this relationship Mm -hmm. that was more important Mm -hmm. to us. So Dan Briggs was was a big part of this other version of the movie and profoundly affected the structure of the movie. Okay. Uh, Also, the underwater sequence and the motorcycle chase were not together so they weren't of a piece and drew uh had very limited time because he had another job so he was he, he wrote the script in five weeks gave it to me right before christmas and then had to go off and do another job and i started to uh i started to move sequences around started to make certain changes tom gave his notes and very quickly that script just unraveled so it came to me to then put it all back together again. And the big change was taking the underwater sequence, and the motorcycle sequence, and putting them together, mm-hmm. realizing that one can lead right into the other. Mm-hmm. And and the other big change of that was he was originally chasing the villain. Ilsa steals the thing from him, and the villain knocks her out and takes the thing and rides away. And, and that was really bothering me, and I realized this just sequence would just be so much more interesting if she didn't lose the object if she was the one running. Absolutely. Which of course then pushed the villain further out into the uh, into the periphery of the movie. What we were trying to do right from the very beginning was bring the best woman the franchise had ever seen and the best villain the franchise had ever seen. And you and and we've realized very quickly, that if we spent all that time developing both of those characters, there wouldn't be room for anybody else. Okay. So Ilsa became became the story we were telling, and Lane became more of the, the, the glue that just held the movie together. Lane was kind of the driver
0: mm-hmm. of the movie. Was Dan Briggs uh, a, a villain at, at one point? In your uh,
1: in, d- in different iterations, he was a good guy, he was a bad guy, he was a, you couldn't tell if he was good or bad, and a lot of that ended up falling into what Ilsa ultimately became. Ilsa okay. became this but and I remember that we had from the very beginning a moment in which Ilsa says to Ethan, "Come on, let's leave, let's get out of here." but is doing it more with you know she's the woman with the bag of money and she was completely amoral she was a very different character she was just mercenary in it for the cash, wasn't an agent of any kind and and has a moment where she says to Ethan, "You can't win. We got all we got this big bag of money, let's just get out of here." Uh, and it, and as the character evolved, that moment disappeared. Mm-hmm. Then later, much later, I was writing the train station sequence and I was writing the, you have three choices mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what the third choice was going to be until I typed it. So I got <laughs> to that moment. She says, come away with me. And that, that was really the revelatory moment for us because we were, we, we broke over Christmas and that allowed me to spend a week in the editing room, about two thirds of the way through the movie, uh-huh. and we had a whole. But you know, we had the motorcycle chase and the opera, and we hadn't shot the A four hundred yet. The underwater sequence was still a previz, but you could kind of get a sense of what the movie was. And Tom and I were watching the first half of the movie, and because it was all in rough form, you just want to you just want to open a vein, and just, <laughs> none of it's working the way you want. And the whole time we're watching it, we're going, "Ugh!" And then on top of all of this, when they get back from Morocco. There's all these talking scenes that kind of explain everything. Yeah, sure. So there's the scene in the train station, there's the scene in the graveyard, there's there's one scene after another. So Tom and I were just miserable knowing that right after Morocco, this is only gonna get worse. Yeah. And so the Morocco we we get to the end of Morocco and he pauses the movie and he's like, Let's take a walk. And it was like we walked around the, the lot at Leavesden and, and it was like, Cut me, Mickey. <laughs> you know, I gotta go back in. We were delaying, we weren't saying it, but we were both delaying what we knew was going to be the most miserable part of the day. Okay. Went back in and sat down, and Eddie had cut together, you know, a big chunk of the second half of the movie. And we got to the moment with no music in it, nothing, total rough cut. And she said, Come away with me. And Tom and I looked at each other and we were like, Did you feel that? Like, that kind of worked. Like, that was actually good. And then there was the scene in the safe house where they're all fighting with each other. And that was working. And all of a sudden we were looking at going, boy, you know, all the like the vegetables of the movie are actually tracking. They're actually playing really well. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: It's all the action that's, that's not worked out yet. The effects aren't done. The music, the mix, all of that stuff is up in the air. And that's when we knew we had something that was working. The character and story beats, I would say are 90% the finished film is 90% of what Eddie showed to us on wow. in that first in that first cut. That's pretty amazing. Let's
0: talk about Ilsa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you knew going into this that you wanted to write the best female character in in, in the yes. series to yes. date. Um, also, we've had some readers' questions and, and some readers have been asking about Julia, Michelle Monaghan's character from the, yes. the previous two films. Now, obviously at the end of Ghost Protocol, Tom... You can read this two ways. Tom either says uh, Ethan says farewell to Julia forever, or he's going to continue to watch over her forever. Mm-hmm. But w- what do you what do you see? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, it's interesting because when I came on board Ghost Protocol, mm-hmm. she was dead. Okay. Uh, and and I remember reading that first draft and wincing when I read that because I thought, "Ugh!" It's like it, it, it immediately brings me to Newt in. <laughs> in aliens three all respect yeah to david fincher who i think is one of the greatest living filmmakers You killed newt like i just <laughs> and hicks i mean there's like two it's you can't do that I know, I know. but you have to you're kind of like if you just dis- if you can if you decide to continue you've got this thing left over and it's not like ripley can't go home and drop them off and then go back out again <laughs> i totally understand it but you were you killed newt and i remember reading the script and thinking oh i can't ever recover from this it's i'm going to be left at the end of the movie however happy the end of the movie is i'm going to be left thinking but his wife is dead yes and it's his fault yes so my first notes on that draft were you have to find a way to save julia and you have to find a way to integrate brant's story into that brant had a whole different backstory. It okay, had nothing okay. to do with Ethan. Yeah, It had to do with a mission that had failed and people had died on that mission. And I thought, well, what if, rather than anonymous characters that we never hear about again, he believes he's responsible for Julia's death. And that Ethan, we find out at the end of the movie, has faked Julia's death in order to protect her. Mm-hmm. And now you have a little bit of the guns and never own. And kind of in reverse. You have, which is a movie I cannibalize left and right. You have <laughs> uh, all, all of life's, problems are answered and the guns of never run. Um, <laughs> you have this really nice moment where where Brandt believes he's responsible for the death of Ethan's wife and is just waiting for Ethan to put two and two together and what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I came up with that idea 10 weeks into a 17week shoot and Jeremy Renner had been acting a whole other backstory. So Jeremy was like what are you talking about like I've been doing this whole other thing and I said I know and I went and watched all your dailies and it's all going to cut together nobody's going to know the difference. And he's like but I'm going to know the difference and I was like this doesn't matter because nobody else will know the difference. And so that ending uh was very contentious. That whole ending how to handle that ending and what's saying I had written a much more explicit version of that scene where Ethan is telling all the the I, and frankly to Clever for its own good. It's Ethan explaining to all of these people who don't want to be agents anymore. He's like, look, here's, here's what's going to happen if you leave.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're going to go off and you're going to do, you, you know, you're, maybe you'll find somebody. And maybe you'll even find somebody that you can tell about this life that you used to live. But sooner or later, what's going to happen is you're going to start to wonder who's out there watching the world while I'm
3: yeah.
1: home with this person. Yeah. And you're going to start to feel like you're not there to protect that person that you that your job is really to be out there protecting the world. There are very few people who do what we do. And and I'm paraphrasing the whole thing, but it's it it was a scene in which he was like the IMF is comprised of incredibly highly skilled people who are incredibly rare and our our place in the world is here and not there. And the subtext of it was if that person really loves you they'll understand that. And so he's saying to them, "Don't go down this road that I've already been down." Sure sure um, And then the, and only then they take their missions and they walk away that you see that realized and you you you're replaying the scene in your head, which I learned later audiences don't do. <laughs> and, but if you replay the scene in your head, you're going, "Oh, everything that Ethan was talking about is he's been telling us the, the journey he and she went through. Sure. And that they're, they they parted ways, knowing that I love you and you love me, but we can never. Re- our paths are going in two different directions. This very sort of romantic idea, which Cruz loved, and the and the studio was like what, <laughs> and uh, and so it took it took showing that idea. It took doing all of that, and what ended up the, the frankly the the scene that I wrote was just too damn intellectual and <laughs> brad bird quite correctly paired it way down okay. uh and made it that now the consequence of that is there's an ambiguity to what is their relationship did yes. they did you know are they still married or and i feel like brad shot it in a way where the physicality is quite correct yeah. that they're not you know he doesn't walk off with her at the end of the movie he goes one way and she goes another way. And all the cinematic language is saying they're no longer together. Yeah. I was really surprised when the movie came out that I was being approached on social media and they were like, well, you know, how can he be with Ilsa? He's still with her and he's still married, and you know and I'm just like, it's a movie. <laughs> um, but also no, he's not with her. And by the way, he's not with Ilsa at the end of the movie either. True. Yeah. True. Absolutely. And that and that's what Tom and I always talk about. that's what Tom loves about Joe Kramer's score at the end of the movie that he references Turandot and then right on the heels of Turandot he references the Mission Impossible theme Mm -hmm. and it's and Tom went right to that place he understood what I was saying and he said it's the cost you've you've really hit on just musically and visually the cost of what it is to be Ethan Hunt because Mm -hmm. Ethan's not the sort of person who ever talks about what it is to be Ethan Hunt we learn about Ethan through the speculation of others yes and if you watch ghost protocol there's rampant speculation as to what really happened and who really is he there's some mysterious backstory it's all the office gerbils who are sort of chattering about <laughs> ethan behind his back and none of them are quite right and ethan kind of reveals the the truth at the end of the story
0: well you have that uh very interesting line at the beginning uh with the record store girl asking you know i've heard so many stories are they are they true? To which Ethan
1: responds with an enigmatic smile. And we which... had—it's funny—we had other responses, and none of them worked as well. And he only did the smile once. Every other take we did like a hundred of, and he did the smile. And I was like, "That's it, moving on." But again, that was a thing that I didn't—I didn't know what that was until I sat down to write it. Mm. I was just writing a scene, and as he turned around to walk, I was like, "What would—what would she say?" And and she—and I just typed it out. Really, is you. And I thought, are we breaking the rules? Are we stepping beyond the boundary? Would people know who Ethan Hunt is? And and I thought, yeah, it would be kind of these, these, all of these outrageous things. Somebody has to type this shit up. <laughs> Somebody's got to file the report. <laughs> and is reading about it, going, oh, God, I was on the outside of an airplane, and it was this is crazy. I've got to tell somebody. It's yeah. like no matter how top secret it is, you have somebody <laughs> at work that you're like, Read, you know proofread this look
0: you know. yeah. but for this guy we'd be dead by now yeah so, my god you know, believe me I'm just, they're, 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 that's going to tell us in a second but the the uh, the scene in the final offer which is a uh, sadly fictional record store that's not too far away from where we're recording this right yes. now um, there's a couple of really interesting things in that uh, one is the the very subtle introduction of Solomon Lane yes uh, which is a very sneaking uh, you know uh, Blink and you'll miss it. Kind yes, of thing. he's he's in a booth at the very very. Yes, scene. he's
1: sitting in. There are two record booths, and he's sitting in the in the one to the right. You okay. see him, and you see him sitting there behind her. And so as she's introduced, Lane is already in the shot mm-hmm. behind her, and then of course the next time you see him, he's standing behind her again with a with a gun to her.
0: Absolutely, and the and the second thing is the the syndicate have taken over the the uh, the mission. Introduction, which uh, I thought was very interesting.
1: It's it's funny the um where that came from. Um, you know, we had this idea of the record store. Tom really loved the analog of it. Tom is super into vinyl, and he's got this this amazing sound system. (laughs) You you would imagine Uh, (laughs) that really belongs on an aircraft carrier, not in his living room. But he's and he loves analog, and he loves film, and. Uh, And so he loved that idea of a record store. And he said, I want the design of the record store. I want people to look at it and say, I wish that was a real record store. You want people wanting to go there. (laughs) You want somebody to build a record store based on that. Um, And Jim Bissell, I thought, did a phenomenal job in creating it. A lot of energy, time and effort went into, is it too, it can't be too grungy, it can't be too upscale." You know, there was there were versions of it where you felt like it felt a little too IKEA. It felt a little too like they'd be serving red wine and brie in there. <laughs> uh, and and it all came down to Hermione Corfield, the the, the the actress playing the girl working there. That how we dressed her really created the final balance. There yeah. were she had high, there were versions where she was too formal. She was too hip, and we sort of found this nice this nice middle ground for all of that. And Sasha Gervasi, the director of mm-hmm. Hitchcock, is a very dear friend of mine and was hugely supportive of me throughout this entire process. He was my, my lifeline. Um, well, I was struggling with the scene and he said, you know, it would just be really great. It would be really great if one time in one of these movies, you know, the, when the, it said this mission will self-destruct, it got to five, four, three, two, one and the whole room exploded. <laughs> and I thought, well, we can't do that because. Tom will be dead at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> but that gave me the idea that this, that this, uh, this communication system had been compromised yes. and that Tom would be gassed in the booth. Cruz, of course, when I mentioned it to him, he was like, that's great. So le- after I get gassed, let's have him blow up the record store, which he thought was a great out. It was originally going to be Lane and we shot it. Lane walks out of the record store and lights a match to light a cigarette and, okay. and the match strike that lights the fuse, is the villain at the beginning of the movie. And we loved that idea. Structurally, it didn't work. It just cool. didn't work that the credits started where they did. It put you too deep into the movie, and you felt a lack of energy. And it was, again, one of those things where, it, as a cut, it worked so much better. But structurally, it it slowed the movie down.
0: It's very kind of
1: as well. Yes, yes, it had, It definitely had that vibe, and he did. He. Oh my God! Now you're saying it. He had a black gloved hand, and he was lighting <laughs> the match. I didn't even think about that. Oh, that would have been awful. I'm so glad we
0: didn't do it. So glad we didn't. Do it. What's very interesting about uh, that the uh, the misappropriation of the mission uh, uh, instructions, if if you will, by the syndicate is that it sets up the syndicate in the movie, and they're set up for the first hour or so as this very mm-hmm. omnipresent, all powerful organization. And I love the fact that you reveal gradually. It's just essentially. One man and some henchmen trying to get the money to start to kickstart the syndicate, essentially. Yes. Um, can you talk about that decision to slowly depower them as they, as they go along?
1: Well, the beginning of the movie, the beginning of the whole process, we were like, no syndicate. They mm. had been mentioned at the end of Ghost Protocol, and we summarily rejected the idea as something. We just said, we don't want like a secret organization. And it, it just felt, it again felt like another movie. And strangely enough, now it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just said, that's not. That's not mission. And as I was writing draft after draft of the movie, or rather trying to structure draft after draft, I was like, I came back to Tom and I was like, it just feels like there's this thing that's in the movie. It's just sort of like trying to get in there. And I think it's the syndicate. I think it kind of wants its place in the movie. It's giving stakes and it's giving a a thing for you to be fighting against rather than just a person. And it gives Lane more of a structure for what it is he's doing.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so that's how the syndicate came to be. And, and lots of time went into what are they really? How much do we want the audience to know? How much information is too much information? And so that scene in the Vienna safe boat Mm -hmm. is, you know, is our pushing the envelope to how much information can actually be in the movie and always dialing. And we edited the scene a bunch of different ways and, we went back and reshot little chunks of that scene it was and to me that scene is just like a, an ugly pill that you have to swallow it's like this <laughs> information that we have to give you and it's just kind of you know it's it's the it's the hologram scene in Edge of Tomorrow which yeah. everybody hated but we all knew we've got to shoot yeah. the scene and so we got to find a way to make it work um and we didn't know what was on that disk we just didn't know we knew it we didn't want it to be a list Because the list had already been done, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and but we knew there needed to be a disk. And yes, I am aware it's a drive and not a disk, and the word "drive" sounded like "ass," and so it says "disk." And you know, (laughs) Sandisk makes drives, but their company's called Disk, so get off my back. Um, That we just we didn't know what the contents of the disk were, the drive, and kept and just kept pushing forward knowing well we'll figure it out and the days were on the schedule where it was like this is the scene where they have to explain what's on this thing Yeah. and sometimes we would figure it out on the morning and I remember when we shot Blenheim Palace and Tom Hollander finally explained what really was on the disc he finished saying it and Cruz and I looked at each other it was the last day right before the Christmas break and we went is that our movie? like all of a sudden the movie started to make more sense and the MacGuffin obviously changes identities during the movie as yeah. a consequence of that yeah that the, the big argument was well if it's the money mm-hmm. and tom knows it's the money if ethan knows it's the money he'd never steal it mm-hmm. ethan hunt would never expose that stuff mm-hmm. you know uh but if he thought it was a list he'd go in and get it so lane quite intelligently tells ilsa it's a list so ilsa will tell ethan it's a list so ethan will steal it and ilsa very quickly realizes that's not a list, it's something else, what is it? Mm-hmm. And over the course of the movie, you figure that out. So you're, the movie is sort of playing musical MacGuffins. Yeah. All of that is because it needed to be one thing in a certain part of the movie to motivate a certain action, and it needed to be something else later on.
0: <laughs> the magical transforming MacGuffin.
1: That's exactly right.
0: I love it. Um, and you keep Solomon Lane and Ethan Hunt apart, relatively speaking, for most of the movie. Yes. Um, What was the reason behind that? Uh,
1: that, Again, that was the, where they would have been together is if he was chasing him during the motorcycle chase, and it served us much better that Ilsa be the one he'd be chasing. Mm -hmm. The movie really be about the conflicted loyalties of Ilsa and how that creates rivalries between her and the IMF. But then there was a scene that we shot at the very end of the motorcycle chase. Tom wipes out, on the side of the road ilsa drives away and he's laying there on the side of the road and solomon lane comes driving up the other he was on his way to meet ilsa head on and finds ethan on the side of the road and had a scene with ethan mm-hmm. it was because tom said i need to confront the villain now and this is where it needs to happen and we wrote it days before we cast sean harris i wrote <laughs> the scene then cast sean then brought him out sean was very reluctant to be in the movie uh, does not like surprises and definitely needs time to prepare. Sure. And I threw a three-page monologue at him the day before he shot it. Oh, my God. And he was, he was terrified and very angry and was a total trooper about it and did the scene brilliantly. It was amazing. And Ellsworth shot shot the scene so beautifully, and I really loved it. And, of course, well, why would this guy stop on the side of the road, have a conversation with Ethan Hunt, and not kill him right there? Yeah. And that be- and it became this scene where it opened you up to a greater sense of what their relationship was and that Solomon Lane had greater plans for Ethan mm-hmm. under the guise of he was trying to recruit Ethan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and th- that he was trying to turn Ethan. And there are little things in, that are still in the movie that indicate that, that Lane is actually trying to recruit Ethan into the syndicate. Mm-hmm. Not that anyone would ever believe for an an instance that Ethan Hunt could be <laughs> recruited. And that's and and Ethan says when he sits down from sits down across from him at, at the Tower Bridge at the end of the movie he says um you n- you never really meant to recruit us. And me yeah. just cut that line out. Okay, okay. Um you know it's when Ethan realizes all this time it's just all been and the problem with that was with that scene. That scene led to a scene in which Ethan was then captured he he ends up in that bar and it's just luther and brandt there's no benji there and luther and brandt he says to luther and brandt i need to speak to Hunley." and luther says how do you how do you expect to do that you cut to luther and brandt bringing ethan to the american embassy and turning him over to hunley who has tracked them down to morocco
0: which is the shot that we've seen this is the
1: image of ethan in handcuffs yeah. being led by two soldiers and in a absolutely beautiful the best moment he had in the entire movie Alec Baldwin comes in and confronts Ethan Hunt in like a great trailer worthy scene <laughs> and doing do you know it was this and, it, and, it, and it's so much fun and it's you know it, it's it's him saying Ethan Hunt it's an honor to finally meet you face to face you've had a very busy weekend and he lists <laughs> everything that Ethan has done up to that point and And, you know, uh, is breaking into a secure computer facility, drafting one of your friends into the assassination of the uh, the Austrian chancellor, and driving down a Moroccan highway doing a buck-eighty with no helmet. I mean, (laughs) you, sir, have single-handedly redefined the term covert operative. (laughs) (laughs) And he just rips Tom apart, and in doing so, rips Ilsa apart. And says, it wasn't all this time I thought the, the... the syndicate was a figment of your imagination and it was a figment of hers and he introduces her dossier and that she's a double agent and that Mm -hmm. the brits have given her up and she's really an assassin and that's all this and all of it is to create pressure on ilsa but to the uninitiated it's all this extra plot that isn't really plot yes
0: yes. it's
1: all misdirections created by secondary characters and the audience felt like they had to follow all of it. Okay. And the notes we were getting in all of the test screenings were, it's just so talky. <laughs> and when I took that eight minutes of the movie out, all those notes went away. And, and, and interestingly enough, I took out the eight minutes and didn't take out the consequential dialogue. When Hunley runs into Attlee mm-hmm. at Blenheim Palace, Attlee says, Director Hunley, the last time we spoke, you were hunting rogue agents in Morocco. Well, there's a whole scene that explains that line. And we took the whole scene out and left this line, which is now an orphan. Didn't bother anybody. It just was, <laughs> so we just left it because it was this nice. So there's a whole other story that's being, these big chunks of the movie that are being alluded to. Yes. And the only line we had to reshoot in that scene, Tom says to, to Alec Baldwin, Solomon Lane, that's who you should really be looking for. And, okay. he just, and Baldwin is so focused on what he believes is right that he won't listen to it. And he says in the scene, Hunts, are you aware of the term confirmation bias? <laughs> Not realizing that he himself is the manifestation of confirmation bias. And so in that scene in Blenheim Palace when the penny is dropping yeah. Yeah. and Jeremy Renner says, Sir, does the name Solomon Lane ring a bell? That's a green screen. We had to bring Jeremy back and reshoot it because wow. Alec Baldwin actually says the line. And, of course, when we shot the whole movie, we are like, this is the one sort of widow that's left that we can't—he we, he doesn't know the name. He's never heard it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we reshot Jeremy's coverage standing in front of that little wall uh, and stuck him in. So if you go back and look very carefully, you'll see that Jeremy is actually— not really
0: there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll need to check that out again. There's yeah. a, there's a lot of information to process in, in that lot. That sequence of Lennon Palace when Attlee is revealed to be Ethan. Yes. Uh, has Ethan met, uh, did Ethan meet Attlee in that sequence that you talk about that was, that was cut out? Is he aware? Because whenever he says, last time we met, you were chasing rogue agents in Morocco, that, of course, isn't that No, that's, he that's had, Ethan. he hadn't yeah.
1: met him, but he, but Baldwin alludes to his British counterpart. Okay. And we haven't seen him yet because the next scene is the scene where Pilsa meets Attlee. Sure. So there's a little bit of an indication of British intelligence and then you see British intelligence and you start to put together, oh, these two guys are communicating. It was very subtly laid into the script and subtle is just not (laughs) what you need at that point.
0: Uh, the last time we talked about this movie was before it came out, and you were you were talking about how you you figure out when to put a mask moment in the movie and when not to put a mask moment in the movie. Yes, yeah. that bluff, obviously, where Benji thinks he's going to get a mask and then doesn't. Yes. Uh, of course, you have the big reveal that that Ethan's been wearing Atlee's face uh for for quite a while. Yes. Uh, and has nailed his voice perfectly, which I presume is a voice box. Hey, well, he
1: peels. the... you see him peels, peel? Yeah, a little he peels the off. off. Yes, absolutely.
0: Blink and you miss it. <laughs> so, um, can you talk about that decision or how you how you decide? When you have a mask moment, who's going to be wearing the mask and for what purpose?
1: We wanted so badly to have Benji get to wear a mask. And it was, um, and it was again a rule you, you didn't even realize you wrote. Uh, and I realized I was committing one of the great sins, which is fan service. I, with all respect to the fans, I don't care. <laughs> I learned a very valuable lesson, a painful, valuable lesson on Jack Reacher. It didn't matter how hard you worked to uh, to appease the fans. And if you go back and watch the beginning of Jack Reacher, every single scar on his body mm-hmm. is a scar from one of the books okay. that are referenced specifically within the books. There is so much detail in the movie alluding to the other books in the history of Jack Reacher. And all any of these people did was say, uh, why is he got to take his shirt off? It's like, it's all ego shit, you know? And it's like Tom Cruise would much rather act with his shirt on. And, uh, and so I, and there were things like that where I just realized I'm not at all interested in, in paying fealty to people who don't for one second take into consideration how difficult it is to make a movie and sure. how, how we have to twist ourselves in knots to accommodate these things that only a segment of the audience cares about. And, the, and this mask thing was kind of obscure in Ghost Protocol. And we were we were still trying to play up to that. And the mask thing was something that was in Ghost Protocol. was uh, There was originally a whole sequence where Benji wore a mask. Okay. And when I tell you it cost $10 million to jump through all the hoops to wear his ultimate mask reveal, and it really never worked, uh-huh. we cut it out of the movie. And Simon Pegg was very upset because a big— chunk of his story was being taken away i said to simon what is it about the mask that is important to you and he described to me sort of what it meant to benji and meant to his storyline and i said if i can give you something else in place of the mask will you be fine he's like yeah no problem just as long as like i just don't want to be the guy on the computer all the time i want to actually do something other than typing on a laptop yeah sure So I went and pitched to the studio, Benji's actually going to be the guy that kills the bad guy at the end of the movie. And it was a big thing because they all wanted Jeremy Renner to kill him, et cetera, et cetera. So now we had this leftover. It was like, well, now the gag that got cut out of the other movie, we'll we'll make it work in this movie. And the hoops we had to jump through to get (laughs) a mass gag. And we had a whole thing where we were going to have Benji. We were going to fake his death. You were going to think he was dead, but he comes back later as a character. And, And that manifested itself in the, in the scene where they Alec, where they they get they hand Tom over to Alec Baldwin, mm-hmm. and Alec Baldwin then come you know shows up at the vehicle as they're taking Ethan to the airport to fly him back to the states, gets in the car with Luther and Brandt, tells the other CIA guys to get in the other car, and it's and they drive away. And a minute later, Alec Baldwin comes walking out of the embassy again, and you're kind of like, what just happened? Are we have we gone back a reel? or? <laughs> and Alec Baldwin says, "Where's Hunt?" where's my car? And you cut inside the car, and finally pulls his mask off, and it's Benji. And, yeah. uh, and again, it and it and the best part of it was that Simon Pegg is so different physically from Alec Baldwin, <laughs> that we had an inflatable Alec Baldwin suit. So not only does he pull the mask off, but he pulls a tab like a life vest under his sleeve, and his body physically deflates. And it got a great laugh. Yeah. It, the first time we tested it, it really played but it was like 11 minutes of the movie with all of that stuff together. And when we took all that out, the pace of the movie just got better. So Benji's mask gag got thrown out again. And the other interesting thing we noticed was there was Benji's faux mask gag Mm -hmm. in the the flash forward, Mm -hmm. then his real mask gag, and then Ackley's mask gag. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were saying there's too many mask gags in the movie. Okay you felt a, and we went back and looked at mission two which i believe has five mask gags (laughs) three of which are tom cruise masks um two of which are the villain posing as tom cruise and we're like all right so what's the what's the the over under on mask gags in the movie (laughs) and we realized it's a maximum of two one is to establish what the mask is you gotta you have to establish the technology in every movie you can't Assume that your audience has seen every other mission movie true, or true. any other mission movie, true. and and then the actual employment of that mask. Bird did a really good job in Ghost Protocol, and then he introduces the mask technology, and the machine fails.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But you at least know what the mask idea is before the villain is the one using the mask. Mm-hmm. And we really we were worried, we were terrified that everybody was going to see that mask gag coming down the pike and we were quite we were quite happy that by taking out the alec baldwin gag which is a much bigger laugh you had forgotten all about the mask yeah. by the time it got there the thing we're most proud of uh, in all of that is not the reveal itself it's the shot of benji putting on the mask if you go back and look at it it's done with no visual effects that's a completely practical that's all in camera the whole transformation. Out. Oh, that's pretty, it's pretty damn good. We, I, I will only tell you because we explain it on the DVD. This okay. Is the day. Cause I, I've, I've kept it to myself the whole time. We kept looking at it and saying, I want to do it as a one-er. How do we do it as a one-er? And Dave Vickery, the, the, the uh, visual effects supervisor was there and we were, we were on this little sort of half set figuring it out. And it suddenly occurred to me, if we do it in a mirror and we double the set, So we built a mirror of the set right down to every single book in the other room is backwards. The CD covers. It's all reversed. Okay. So you're actually not looking at Simon Pegg reflected in the mirror Uh or Tom Cruise or Rebecca Ferguson. (laughs) You're looking at doubles. And the double putting the mask on Benji It's a a double putting the mask on Benji, and Tom is standing behind, is standing in the reflection.
3: Okay, yeah, And we've cut the double's head off. Yeah.
1: And Rebecca is on the A side of the mirror, and her double is on the B side, and she's wearing a silk shirt, the wrinkles of which are incredibly unpredictable. We had to shape all the wrinkles in her shirt, we had to fix her hair, and Simon and Sean Cronin, the actor playing the other guy, are doing that actor exercise where simon is moving his hands and sean has to mimic all of simon's motions so you're watching them imitate each other in the mirror and so if you go back and watch it you'll see that there's no mirror there and it's it's all done with it's done as a wonder and it's done with no cuts we were so proud of it and of course everybody watches it and they're just like whatever it's cg who cares
0: who cares? That's amazing. I've got to let you go, Chris, but I've got a few more questions if you don't mind. No, um, take your time. Uh, it's a podcast. It's a podcast. Absolutely. People got time. They got time. Yeah. Um, Hunley's line in the revelation, uh, scene at Blenheim Palace. Hunt is a living manifestation of destiny. Uh, is a fantastic line. Where did that come from?
1: That, uh, from outer space. Um, I wrote that line on the way to work one morning while I was working, uh, during the opera sequence, which was very, very, very strenuous part of the shoot. And I knew that scene was coming up. And, uh, and again, it was just, it's one of those things that pops into my head. I knew, I had Alec Baldwin's voice in my head as I was writing this description. He had to be convincing. The prime minister of the, the veracity of this person that was after him. And I, and, and I wrote all of the, there is no secret he cannot extract, no security he cannot breach, no person he cannot become. And I was like, boy, this guy just is like, if he has, if he decides he's going to take you, he's going to take you. He's the living manifestation of destiny. And I remember getting to the set and I hadn't even typed it out.
3: Yeah.
1: I just, and I, and I got to set and went to Cruz's trailer and knocked on his door. He opened. I was like, "How about this?" And I just rattled it off. And he was like, "I love it." And I was like, "Okay, that's good." And walked to set, <laughs> and we just we yeah. The, the, and I, and again, you write it, and you don't think about it as something that anybody's going to quote back to you. And it's mm-hmm. really interesting to see how that line is resonated with
0: people. Is there something about writing you know, particularly for Alec Baldwin, who's the man who did, you know, the uh, Always Be Closing Speech at Lincoln Oh, yes. And, you know, I Am God and Malice, you know, and this man knows oh, yes. his way around a monologue.
1: He knows his way around. He knows his instruments so well. When you're directing Alec, you're, you're really just watching Alec direct Alec. <laughs> he does an incredible job. He'll be, first of all, he interprets the text beautifully. There's very, I have to do little to nothing in terms of explaining my intention. He'll come to work that day and say, you know, if I rearrange these two sentences, this will be better emphasized. Which do you want? Mm -hmm. He's not, it's not like, oh, I'm doing it this way. He's like, he comes in and he takes all of the original text, kind of does a little bit of a Lego with it. And then he'll start reading it and you're listening to him. And it's all predicated by the first note. The first words out of his mouth set the tone for the rest of this very musical thing he's doing. And he'll read, he'll say a word and it'll just be slightly off. From what, it's just the same way you'd be, F sharp instead of F. Sure, sure. And right where I would make a note to do it another way, Alec will stop. And he'll go back to the beginning and he'll start it again. And he'll just, (laughs) and he'll, and he does it and does it and does it until he reaches the end and it's all perfect. And you just, and there it is. You do each one of those for every camera angle and you've, and he leaves you with, you know, the stuff that he's rejected has got beautiful little bits and shades and colors in it. So it was really, really fun to to watch him. He was just he was just fabulous.
0: Was the idea always to have Hunley eventually become the secretary of the IMF?
1: Yeah, we knew that right from the beginning. We loved the idea. And again, you know, everything you're looking at is sort of one-fifth of our ambition. We wanted Hunley to be at the center of whatever the doomsday plot was at the end of the movie, and realizing that he that he had somehow brought the wrath of God down upon himself, and then Hunt ultimately saves him. Um, but that, of course, behooved a big wrath of God sequence that, <laughs> that we were constantly chasing after. And it was only when Cruz and I realized you don't need that, you don't have to have that at the end of the movie, just go, go with the, go in the direction the movie's been telling you to go. Yeah. That I went over to his apartment one night and said, I think the reason why this is not working. because we keep trying to kill lane and we keep thinking this needs to be a big mano a mano with you and sean and i'm not seeing that not only am i not seeing it i'm not feeling it i'm not wanting to see lane get his ass kicked Mm. and i'm not craving his death the way i'm Craving Owen Davian's death in 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying watching Tom beat the shit out of Philip Seymour Hoffman at that point. Because of what he's done to Michelle Monaghan. Yeah. And Tom said, yeah, you know, you're right. And and I said, and he said, so what's the alternative? And I said, the alternative is you outsmart him. And I think you catch him. And we're not going to kill our villain. Which was, now, it's how you watch the movie and it seems like perfectly simple. But to us then, that was a radical departure from rules we had created. This is just
0: rules you've created. This rules every movie created. It feels like yeah, it's a big budget movie.
1: The bad guy must be punished for whatever reason. He he must be punished. But mm-hmm. there's now I don't. There's another big budget movie. I shouldn't be spoiling in a spoiler podcast. But you'll
0: oh, this will this will be out after the, the movie. That he, I think you're
1: okay. About. Yeah. So there's a, but there's another big blockbuster spy movie in mm-hmm. which the villain doesn't perish at the end of the movie. Correct. Uh and. Of course, you can. When you're watching that movie, you know what they're doing is they're they're laying up. Yes, a, a yeah. great rivalry between these two. We didn't go down that road. We came to that place of realizing at the end, oh shit, you can actually put this guy in ice and bring this guy back. And of course, Sean Harris, when he took the job, he said, "Promise me you're going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Promise me you're going to kill me because I don't want to be in five of these movies." And I said, "Sean, I don't know how to tell you this, man." It's not up to you. It's not up to me. You know. I mean, I I love you. Imagine if I didn't like you. Um <laughs> If the audience likes you, you got a you got a twin brother you don't know about, or a clone, or a prequel. You're coming back. There's just you get we have you. It's in writing. You're coming yeah. back if they want yeah. you. That's that's that. But that's a whole other way to go about it. We just didn't we didn't plan it. That
0: so the rage that uh, Solomon Lane feels at the end when he's firing blank uh, bullets futilely it into the glass. It is Sean
1: Harris going, you mother... Why didn't you kill me? <laughs> you promised you would kill me. I can't believe I'm going to be back for five more of these movies.
0: And of course, the Solomon Lane prequels and the uh, spin-offs and, Of course. And yes. Solomon Lane origins. And, Solom- and when he yeah. sees
1: a Solomon Lane Happy Meal, he's just going to be... He'll just be... So, it's just not Sean's destiny to be the franchise guy and yet... And yet it is. And yet it is indeed. Uh, and he,
0: you put him in a glass box, which is something. Uh, first of all, Ethan tells him he's going to do about five, ten minutes beforehand, but yeah. it also mirrors what happens at the beginning of the movie. So, which was, serendipity or, or planning? Well,
1: the ob- you know overlooking the obvious, we mm. we again thought it needed to be this big sequence, and and it was only when we let go of needing to kill him and then got into outsmarting him that it suddenly it was a very short conversation of well what would it be and we thought well you'd want to do to him what he did to you at the beginning of the movie and that's when the this notion of a glass box came and i have to admit cruz was so enthusiastic about it when i presented it and i never believed it i never believed it would work and i just kept thinking to myself it's you should be ending ending on this grand scale and you're ending on a you know it Luther and Brant went to Home Depot and bought a bunch of plexiglass (laughs) and some drills. That's the end of Mission Impossible. And when the movie was over, I was having uh, dinner with Mark Evans uh, from Paramount. And he was thrilled about the movie and the movie was testing very well. And I said, but Mark, admit it. If I'd handed you this script six months before we started shooting, (laughs) you would never have greenlit this movie. And he said, no, you're absolutely right. I would not. I would not. That is not the ending to a Mission Impossible movie. But somehow it kind of worked. And I re- and then when we tested it, I was terrified of the test. And it's it was the audience's favorite scene in the movie. It scored It scored higher than some of the bigger action sequences in the movie. It was a very valuable lesson for me to learn. That's not to say I will ever set out to do that again. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the next action movie I do, I'm going to reverse engineer it from the biggest action sequence <laughs> at the end of the movie. I'm going to go right back to the rule book because, you know, we, it, it it feels like you know we it was it, it was very organic but it was only organic because we didn't mandate that that was what was organic mm. i learned a lot in terms of where suspense and humor and all of those things really come from and they come from a place of hard work you don't you don't ever take them for granted because everything that we thought was funny
2: mm. thought
1: was emotional thought mm. was romantic wasn't and things that we we took for granted within the thing turned out to be much fun. every one of jeremy renner's lines laugh lines in the movie is jeremy renner improvising on the day and breaking with the script and you're just like just say the line just so i can get out of here and uh and whereas every laugh line that i wrote for him yeah fell completely flat and we (laughs) just threw them out you know so and i learned and that's that's again tom is one way Simon's another, Jeremy's yet another, and mm-hmm. Jeremy is someone who you give the, a, a greater deal of latitude. The more freedom you give Jeremy, the more raw material Jeremy gives you. Jeremy is just, he's this, he's this thoroughbred animal who is struggling against the constraints of rigid plot mechanics, yeah, yeah. sort of color in between the, inside the lines, movie making and so and he, he gets you that stuff but just every now and again his just whole being goes yeah fuck that i just didn't. and he says something <laughs> crazy uh and those and those are the things that end up in the movie so there's it, you get a very real mm. very primal thing from jeremy much of which comes from the stress of jeremy making movies like mission impossible which yeah, which constrain him and don't Give, and don't give him a bounty of the things that he loves to do and plays best with. And we use that. You know, you were asking about Alec Baldwin. What I like to do is sort of look at the actor and study that actor, what makes them tick. I get their voices very much in my head and I write very much for that actor. Okay. Once I, I don't think about it in those terms when I'm writing the script, but once I've cast the role, I begin Shaping the role and tailoring that role for that actor, uh, and and what we realized in Ghost Protocol was that that element of just acid indigestion <laughs> that that Brant has uh, is is informed so beautifully by Jeremy Renner going just let me just let me swing for the fence just one time. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Brant's very interesting in this movie because uh, a he gets the last line of the film. Yes. Which I thought was was uh, was uh, sacrilege. not sacrilege. No, just but an it, inter-
1: interesting uh, direction. Well, but again, we 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 shot that uh, we shot that moment, thinking that there was one more beat at the end of the film, and we killed ourselves trying to come up with the beat because we really believed it's a Mission Impossible movie, and the Mission Impossible's got to end on Ethan Hunt, mm-hmm. and so we were talking about what that ending would be, right up until the the second test screening, we were going to go back and we were going to shoot some ending. We were going to, But we couldn't figure out what the content of that scene would be. It's, is he reunited with Ilsa on a beach somewhere? In which mm. case you just said goodbye to Ilsa and now she's back. Mm-hmm. Are they going off on another mission? And it felt like, you know, there was one version where I took the A400 and made it a post credit sequence, <laughs> right. um, you know, or rather, you know, the plane is taking off and you cut to credits and the end of the, post-credits you see ethan get on the plane and
0: get sucked out okay
1: all of which was just we felt unclean while we were doing it but we we (laughs) tried all that stuff um you know and and uh uh and and it was when we tested the movie and that that ending got a great response from the audience we just decided well maybe that's maybe that's it maybe the movie's just over and and you don't need anything else and it was when we were designing the credit sequences that the title sequences which is always one of the most fun things to do the movies cut together you're kind of taking your victory lap and now you're like now i get to play i get to do my version of the the opening credits of mission impossible the, we had several vendors who were all sending us their ideas mm-hmm. and uh and i'm sorry to say i can't think of their names right now the vendors who sure. did the actual film please go and read the credits and see their names That's brilliant they sent us two they said that this is one version a and version b whichever one you like and it was those are the versions that are in the film at the beginning and the end of the movie We said well i love them both and let's do a curtain call let's have like a, a thing at the end of the movie which gives you this kind of sense of you see the team and it allowed us to still end the movie on Ethan. And it also, ironically, allowed us to end on the A400 as well as begin. So we we did manage to find a way to have the A400 be the end of the movie.
0: I like it. Uh, And Brant in this movie, in the last film, he was very, very physical. There was almost a sense that he might be set up to eventually take over from Tom one day. Um, But in this movie, he's very much a bureaucrat. And he's mm-hmm. very much involved with, with Hunley. He does get to some physical stuff towards the end, but that, that seems like a very clearly uh, deliberate decision. Can you talk about? It about
1: was, that? It, well, it was a consequence of, again, just the, 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 the way, not understanding globally what the movie was while we were making it, that mm-hmm. the movie be, you, the, the shape of the movie be, was gr- getting clearer every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we always had this idea that at the end of the movie, you would have, Brant and Luther and Simon, they would all be part of this big physical sequence. The problem was they didn't have a whole lot of people to be physical (laughs) against. Okay. It was really hard to find stuff for all of them to do. And again, I felt an obligation to do it. It was a rule that I had created for myself. And it was only when I looked at it and said, this movie's really about Ilsa and Ethan. Mm. And by letting that stuff go, I'll have... I'll have more room to, to focus the end of the movie. Everything else just felt like it was just, it was giving everybody their moment for the sake of their moment. And it felt like it was all just, the movie just felt like it kept, it, like it kept ending. Yeah, sure. Even with the, the ending that you've got in the final film, when we screened it the first time, we were getting all these notes about, it feels like the movie ends four times. <laughs> and of course the studio, their response and and this is not a critic criticism of the studio. I think Paramount was actually phenomenal on this movie. We got along very, very well. But the studio, their natural response is the audience is saying too many endings, you gotta you gotta pull stuff out. And I didn't know what to do. And Tom quite rightly said, It's the music. He said, Don't change the cut of the film at all. If you change the music, because we still had temp music in the okay. the end of the movie, he said the tempo of the music is wrong, and the music from this moment, from the moment we go to Blenheim until the end of the film, all needs to feel like one piece. And it'll make all of that feel like one sequence instead of several. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And the task was put to Joe Kramer to very quickly cobble something together and record it for the last test screening. And without changing the picture in any significant way, we shot up 10 points. <laughs> he was right. Wow. He was absolutely right. And that that's, you know, that's... Uh, That's the magic of having Tom who, you know, on top of being a great actor and a great star is also a very accomplished filmmaker who's done this so many times and respects that process.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, He does not treat it dismissively. He's not a slave to it. He doesn't panic and and overreact to what the notes are. Mm -hmm. But he's, he's very keenly aware that when there's a note like that, there is a problem. It's just not necessarily the problem you think it is <laughs> uh, and he's very good at diagnosing symptoms versus diseases.
0: Mm. but you have that that, that double act in, um between Brandt and Hunley throughout the uh, the movie as a result yes as a result of that.
1: Yes and so then we got to that ending and it was really funny we we knew we needed that little beat. And we we were shooting at Pinewood, shooting a bunch of other stuff. And we brought in Alec and Jeremy to get this one little idea. We didn't have the corridor that they had originally been in at the beginning of the movie. And so we went into the commissary at Pinewood and found that little staircase. There was a pillar that, that looked enough like the same art, you know, the same woodwork. And ironically, that room that they're in behind the camera is the old commissary at Pinewood. Mm. And the camera is literally two feet away from where the table had been where (laughs) tom cruise and paula wagner and don granger and a couple of other paramount executives had lunch and had the very first meeting for the very first mission impossible wow uh so we were having this kind of like little (laughs) kumbaya moment don granger was reliving the and tom was looking at the room he's like you're right oh my god oh that's that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So Hunley's going to be
0: now the uh, the secretary of the IMF. Uh, a job for which life expectancy is not usually the best. It has to be said.
1: Uh, it, well, it, it's interesting because there's only been there's only been the one on-screen secretary. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Wilkinson's sort of mm. Brad, Brad, Brad's movie was the first time you actually ever met the secretary as an entity and they kind of kept him mythic and then mm-hmm. immediately whacked him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just like the idea of of putting a face on the IMF and, and, and finding setting up, uh, uh, devices by which we could get away from the mission formula. Mm Uh, we were, we were thinking very much in terms of down the road. How do we, how do we take the IMF away from being an antagonistic love, hate relationship with Ethan? And, uh, and that was kind of our, that was our, that was the beginnings of that idea.
0: Uh, you talked um, the last time we spoke about the the makeup of the team on this one and how you wanted to bring back pretty much at one point every living every every agent who'd survived the previous the yeah. previous movies yeah um obviously that didn't quite work out, but how close did you come?
1: Well, we talked about for a really long time uh in and, and in several drafts uh Maggie Q's character came back and uh and and suffered an unfortunate end, you know, at the end of the first act of the movie? Because that's another big question you are constantly have. You're debating with yourself is the, the villain will be a whole lot more effective a villain if he knocks off somebody I care about. Yeah. Who's he going to knock off? And what are the consequences of that? When can it happen in the movie? Can the movie survive the death of that character? And it, it's all about tone. It's really just about the tone of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, going all the way back to not being able to kill Julia in Ghost Protocol, yeah, yeah. it just brought the tone of the movie down from a place that you, you, you couldn't escape or you sort of had to callously ignore. So we're we, we flirted for a long time with killing somebody and and as a means of really making the villain evil, and then but then then it becomes a revenge story. You know, it becomes you're constantly reminded of the death of this character. It's not to say that's a bad thing. Mm. It's just to say, did, did we want that tone? And you, and so it's kind of, it's kind of like clutch and gas. You know, kind of, <laughs> I can push a little bit this way and a little bit that way. And how do I get the two things to work together? Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I, I think one of the reasons why Owen Davian is such an effective villain in the franchise and is the, the villain that everybody sort of references and is the gold standard. Um one, Philip Seymour Hoffman is plays an extraordinary menacing, angry, forceful character, but he also does something utterly despicable mm. in the opening minutes of the movie
2: mm.
1: and then in the opening sequence of the movie, post credits, does something utterly despicable again. <laughs> um it's really dark. Yeah. I mean, he shoots Michelle Monahan in the head and then blows up Carrie Russell's brain. Yeah. And, uh, and is pretty much therefore for for the rest of the movie, somebody that you want to kill. And we know, God, that first scene is, we're coming back to that. Yeah. We're going to have to relive that horrible moment. Yeah. It's, it's an ideal structure for creating sort of the, you know, the perfect villain. But it's also, it's pretty heavy duty. And there wasn't another character, you know, put Simon Pegg in that chair, put Ving Rhames in that chair. Mm. Put Jeremy Renner in that chair. Put Tom in that chair, and we did it. We we had those things, you know. We we played with those ideas constantly, and thought to ourselves, God, it's just, it's really, for each one has its own reasons for why it's it's hard to survive.
0: And did you ever think about bringing Kittredge back from the first
1: movie? A, uh, a you know, there thing. was talk about Kittredge coming back for the second movie. I heard. Okay. And for whatever reason, he didn't want to do like a sequel. Didn't want to do it. And uh, and Sean Harris uh, syndrome. Uh, Yeah. And I, I, now I could be talking completely out of school. So, uh, I, I I may be totally imagining that. But then, yeah, we talked about, we talked about Kittrich in this movie. Okay. Um, and then just, and then just decided to create sort of a character from whole cloth. And that part was written specifically for Alec. And Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I remember the name Alan Hunley just popped into my head and it just became (laughs) sort of like, boom, it just formed who that guy who that
0: guy was. But there are nods uh, all the way through the film to the previous films.
1: Uh, there's nods to the previous films and there's nods to a great many other films that inspired the film. Um, uh, the, the, the very important thing being that it's it's important that when you are making homages to other films to know for a fact you're actually not making that movie. <laughs> um there's nods to The Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, uh, uh, movies like that throughout the film. Sure. And uh, and I never once <clears throat> fooled myself into believing that at any point was I actually making a film that, that approached The Parallax View. It's, so it's like not to actually ape or, or create that. But when you look at that courtroom, that courtroom is modeled completely after uh, The Parallax View. And there's one... There's one shot yeah. in the movie that is that is straight out of Three Days of the Condor. And I've been waiting for somebody to pick up on it because it's glaring. And they're so busy focused on the other Easter eggs in the scene. They're missing like the big Easter egg. In the movie. I've seen it four times. I need to go back and see it. <laughs> go back and watch it again. You'll see, see go back it and and you'll be like, oh my God, that's like, that's egregious. That's like <laughs> straight out of the movie. <laughs>
0: So you, you you um you brought back in the end Ving Rhames who is now a good luck charm I'm, I'm guessing as well is, yeah is that something that you, I'm...
1: it's funny Ving was not in Ghost Protocol uh-huh. and JJ uh, had the note when I was when I was doing the rewrite a note came to me from JJ saying is there any way we can get Ving in the movie and I I thought about it for one minute and said yes it's like a perfect way you could do it and and because I, I knew that ending was coming and i thought oh that's a great way to to set up the end of the movie and to kind of expand the sense of the imf is to have this idea that so the, so ving came back as at the very very end of mm-hmm. ghost protocol but truly was not ever supposed to be in the movie until that <laughs> that happened at which point i was like you got to bring luther back you know luther's been in all four you can't it's like he'll be so glaringly absent if he's not in it yeah. and the the magical sort of discovery of that was that that he and Brandt formed a buddy act. Yeah. Um, I knew, I knew I wanted to do something where I split the team up so that they weren't all together all the time. Uh, you'll notice that there's actually very little screen time with the whole team together mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the movie. Uh, because there's just, there's very little for them to do. And I had, I had another idea for how to bring the team together at the beginning of the movie, which I'm going to keep to myself because it's in the, <laughs> It's in the book of little things, like you know, little little cast-off items that the whoever makes the next Mission Impossible will. Uh, it, 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 it'll be it'll be a bag of, of leftovers. <laughs> it's like here, this could help you. There's some table scraps. <laughs> so you have the
0: team, uh, and you know the makeup of the team, and you know it's going to be a swinging sausage fest. It's the IMF yes. is all guys. Yes. Which again, finally, we come back to to Ilsa. Um, does that increase the pressure on you then to deliver a cracking female protagonist?
1: Well, the real pressure in delivering a cracking female protagonist is finding the right actress, actor, uh, to play to play that role, and uh, and we really, really suffered and struggled with that. She had to be the right age. She had to have the right bearing. We really wanted her to be somebody that we hadn't seen do this before. There were a lot of great actresses that I met with who would have been fantastic for for any number of reasons, um, but then for other reasons didn't quite fit this thing that I was looking for and didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I had an actress in mind from, from the very beginning and was an actress that had gotten away on a previous project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first meeting that I took on this movie was to go to marketing and sit down with marketing with whom I'd really not communicated on Jack Reacher. And Jack Reacher was a very tough marketing challenge. And on this one, I said, rather than repeat that, I just went sat down with him and I said, tell me what you need. Tell me what you need to make, tell me how to make a Mission Impossible movie <laughs> so that I'm giving you the stuff that you need. And they were sort of stunned by that. And they said, okay. And they brought out all of these trailers from all these different movies, and from all the previous Mission movies, and l- pointed out all the things we wish we had more of. This we really like this. This was a problem story-wise of getting across, and you know these are all things to think about. And all the time I was looking at it, I thought in every one of these movies they got a woman getting out of a car with a, with a slit mm-hmm. in her dress, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to do the slit dress. That's, that's I'm not going to do it. But more importantly, the woman I have in mind isn't right for what they have in mind. Okay. And I'm not going to swim upstream against what they're looking for for marketing to young women and young men. Sure, sure. So I I immediately jettisoned my want and went right after what they were looking for and a specific archetype from another kind of movie and spent a long time chasing that until I had... I had compromised my, what that was. I wasn't even chasing after that anymore. And was at the place where I was ready to cast someone who's fantastic, but not, still not the thing that I had set out to get in that room. Um, so you, again, you just created rules for yourself and thought you had to go, and suddenly you realize I'm not even enforcing the rule that I had set for myself. I'm mm-hmm. compromising and don't even know it. There was something just not right about it. It just wasn't quite working in that she was a really great actress, but it was, but it just overall, it was darker. It was darker and more serious than we wanted it to be. And we, we sort of instinctively knew that she was a very powerful actress.
0: And clearly, you don't want to name her. No, no, Jessica no, down. because
1: I want to work with her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, It was the last day, Wade Eastwood, the stunt coordinator called and said, you gotta cast someone today because in four weeks, we're throwing her off the roof of the Vienna Opera House and she's gotta be ready and I need time to train her. If you don't cast her today, she won't be ready. And Tom and I were like, all right, before we finalize this decision, let's just take one more look. And we went through all the the files of all these different women that had been on tape. And there was Rebecca Ferguson who i had quite frankly passed over
2: mm-hmm.
1: a number of times just the photograph because it wasn't the archetype yeah it yeah. was the antithesis of the archetype that had been outlined for me and tom said who is that i said oh let's you know I, I haven't watched it so we looked at it and within 30 seconds of her speaking she had done this self tape we looked at each other and said oh my god it's ingrid bergman <laughs> because everything you and i've ever talked about wanting a lead woman to be in a movie Mm. and yet she was not anything like the archetype or the other actors that i thought about she was just it she was just ilsa and we said please let her be available oh my god if she's not and please let her be able to act just (laughs) you know please let her be as good as she looks like on tape and brian burke what just went through brian burke our producer went through all sort of all sorts of hoops to get her off the set of a movie she was currently shooting in Morocco. Yeah, get her to England, where she literally landed, drove to the to the to test, and had two hours before she had to drive back to the airport and get on a plane. Walked in the room, and we knew, we just knew. And she was just she was so easy and so charming and. Really comfortable with Tom, and underneath was completely freaking out. We found out <laughs> later, which was a big thing. You kind of know that that's what's happening,
3: yeah.
1: And you're looking at this person and going, "I know this person's freaking out, but boy, she's really got it together and she's really handling the stress of this very well." Uh, and we just we fell madly in love with her. Hmm. Um, and and we, as almost as a kind of perfunctory, we did the scene, and it was a scene that I had written that was very very serious. And I could see Tom like trying to pull the scene in another direction. You know, Tom was like, nah, I want it to be more like this. And I was like, yeah, but no, it's more like this. And we're arguing with each other in front of Rebecca. And Rebecca's kind of looking like, and we're, of course, Tom and I finish the half of the sentence that we've actually bothered to utter. So when you're listening to us, you know, it's like no one can understand what we're talking about. So we're just speaking gibberish. And finally I had her do the scene the way the scene was written and she was great and it was angry and forceful and it was really, she really kind of unloaded on Tom. And of course, Tom is, I could see in Tom, he was just like, but that's not the character, like that's not what, what, and all I'm thinking is, boy, she can do it all. So I was really excited. And Tom was looking at it, yeah, but I want the character to be like this. And I was like, We're not making the movie yet. It's gonna be all right. Uh and and so he really focused on getting Rebecca absolutely everything that she could possibly need and and was so supportive of her and was just and just was really great. It was great to watch the two of them together. And she was uh It was very hard. It was very challenging for her. She had to get physically up to speed right away,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but, uh, but rose to the challenge and really uh, was great. And, and then came the, you know, the development of the script and this dynamic between the two of them that involved her saving his life, not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another actor in Tom's position would have been like, wait a minute. And, Tom recognized, no, this is what, the the stronger she is, the stronger
0: we all are. Mm. What was Ilsa like in the original script?
1: Ilsa in the original script was, she was sort of more, it was, she was more cocky and more mischievous and more, she was more, she just created more havoc. She was like a much more sort of destructive character and mm. someone you could not count on to follow the, the plan, you know. We, the, 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 the running joke was alright we're going to go on we're, we're going to go in and we're going to be absolutely silent and she would walk in the room and pull a gun out and just kill somebody right away <laughs> with, without a silencer and the alarm would sound and she turned to Ethan and go alright what do we do now you know? <laughs> and, and we loved that idea but it also it, it wasn't it wasn't mission it just wasn't integrated it was kind of broad it was kind of comic and then when Rebecca came on and And I saw in her this, I saw Ilsa, I saw who that character was. She didn't need to be disruptive because the nature of her job was going to be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And she didn't need to be defensive or a victim. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, uh, Which is like an unfortunate trend. I mean, we can go on, do a whole other podcast on... The way women are written in film now. And, and it's, it's very important for me to state that I have two daughters. I've been married for 16 years. I, uh, my, my dog is a female and I do not understand women at all. I don't pretend to. And I'm, I'm, I, I never quite get it right. And I'm, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about women. Sure. I do know what really annoys me about. The majority of women characters in movies that I see nowadays, they are uh, they are solely responsible for often just bringing the breasts, yeah,
3: um,
1: and uh, and for being objects in peril, uh, for being somebody who has sex with the hero, or they're they're uh, men, they're just men, they're they're women in a man's role, behaving in a very male way. Yeah, yeah. And I was not interested in either of those things. I wanted this woman to be a woman. And the, the the crude way to put it was the female Ethan Hunt. But that meant a man. And it was like... And, and his equal, that meant almost like subordinate too. And it sure. was like, no, what we want is she is... She has her own story in the movie. And she's dealing with her own problems and her own pressures. And her pressures dovetail into Ethan's pressures so that they have a common interest but she is not subsumed by Ethan's pressures and uh and that's that was a very fine line to walk and it ultimately came down to two things the uh, the, the one being she can never be in jeopardy mm-hmm. she can never be the the and now she's in jeopardy at the end of that movie when they're sitting at that table but they're all in the same jeopardy yeah,
3: yeah. it
1: was never going to be she's not going to be strapped to the bomb and waiting for Ethan to come and save her that was one. Two, she never lies. And her, all of her circumstances create the impression that Ilsa is, is lying. Mm-hmm. Because she tells the truth to Ethan. And then in the next scene, she goes to see the villain of the movie and tells him the truth. <laughs> and that dynamic created something whereby nobody knew that they could trust her all the way through the movie. Whereas I watched it. And I think it's totally obvious when she sits down with Simon McBurney, who she really is. She's mm-hmm. taken the disguise off and is speaking to her boss, yes. saying, I didn't want to kill Ethan Hunt. And, you know, and, and, and he's saying, you should've. Mm-hmm. It's like all our cards are on the table. Even then the audience going, no, she's now the audience <laughs> is trying to be smarter than the movie going, she's playing a role with him. And yeah. oh, now she's back talking to Lane. She's playing it. So by the time you get to the train station and she's just completely upfront, mm-hmm. the way I see it, you have three choices she everybody's looking at her going it's all a trick it's all a trap it's all a lie and in reality is just being completely straightforward the whole time that was a very a very fine line to walk that kept her from being a femme fatale kept her from being a dragon lady it kept her from being a victim Mm -hmm. and from being all the things we didn't like the character to be all of that is rooted in the lessons we learned On Edge of Tomorrow with Emily Blunt and and Rita yeah and a lot of that came from Emily's determination to not be that character. Emily was there in all of those sessions where we were writing the movie as we shot it, and has a very keen bullshit detector. Just go (laughs) no, I don't know. That's kind of and it was never an indulgent thing. It was never. It was just always Emily very carefully saying, you know, it just doesn't. It's not, it's just not Rita. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel like Rita. She had a very astute sense of what that was. The kiss that they share at the end of the movie, we're killing ourselves trying to find a way to have them kiss at the end of the movie. We just couldn't do it. It just always felt forced. It felt, it felt perfunctory. Right? Yeah. This is the moment where they, where it becomes about their sexuality. So we eventually abandoned it. Yeah. And Doug Lyman let it go. Tom let it go. And then on the day she was, Getting ready to say goodbye to Tom, and she just grabbed him and kissed him. And and after Doug Yelled Cut, we were like, What was that? She goes, I don't know, it just felt right. And I just did it. <laughs> and so so we we played with that in the movie. I gave I gave Rebecca latitude. There was a moment when she resuscitated him. She said, I don't know. And she goes, it felt like I should kiss him there. And I said, Then do it. And I'm not gonna tell Tom, just do it. And she did it. And it was it was perfectly nice. And then when we showed the movie, we were like, the audience was like it felt a little forced and we're like you're right we got rid of it
3: yeah yeah. and the
1: movie was stronger because of it yeah and we and we thought at the end we would have a moment where they kissed goodbye and right up until we shot the scene that was going to be the scene but it wasn't written it was tom knowing by then you'll figure it out so i got there on the day uh and i walked up to tom and i said i'm not feeling it i just don't believe it i don't think that's your relationship we would shot another more romantic scene between them Uh but by now we'd seen enough of the movie and knew that scene didn't fit and was probably not going to make it it was a scene in morocco and i said i think this is a relationship based on respect and trust and and mutual understanding Uh Uh she knows what you've been through you know what she's been through you're at different places in that arc she has to leave you have to stay And he said, You're right. That's what it is. And I just, and I, and my direction to Rebecca was very simple. I said, Don't say goodbye to Ethan, say goodbye to Tom. And what you're seeing in her performance is the, is their relationship and how, how much she cares about Tom and Mm. how much she, how she cares about Tom and how, uh, and how, Rebecca is somebody who has a very different relationship with the business than Tom does. Yeah, yeah. Rebecca was looking forward to going home, <laughs> <laughs> whereas for Tom it's like, I'm on to the next mission. <laughs> Where's the next plane? Yeah, like, and so, so you, and so you feel that between them. And it was Cruz. It was really nice when she got in the car, and Cruz said, "You know, there was no there was no line at the end, and it was Cruz," and he said you've got to have I want them to feel hope I want them to feel some sense that even though they're not together they could be in some other in some other life they would be mm. and and you know where to find me became the line mm. and I gave Rebecca direction and Tom walked up to me and he whispered in my ear he was like don't ever look at me I was like just don't have look and in the one take where Rebecca just sort of throws it out over her shoulder she doesn't look right back at him that's the one that's the one we used
0: it's amazing she's an amazing character and there's uh, there's some very um interesting using that word again developments uh in relation to to Ilsa, the movie came out just after another summer blockbuster, uh, I won't name, but got a lot of flack for its depiction of its female lead, uh, especially in relation to footwear. Footwear. Yeah. Um, And it's uh, it's just a little small thing, but uh, but Ilsa is constantly taking off her shoes or demanding that Ethan take off her shoes. Uh, Was that... Where did that come from? Was that did you did you feel it in the wind that this was this was something
1: that was going to happen? This no, summer? I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's again, Cruise's astute sense of emotion, and and always coming at it from an emotional way. Because I'm like story plot, story plot, story plot, logic, and Cruise is like emotion, 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 emotion. I've walked away from mission thinking in those terms now. I'm like lead with your heart.
2: Okay,
1: and Cruise said, "This is a date." This, if we're, if we were looking at this like it wasn't a spy movie, but a romantic comedy, the subterranean chamber is boy meets girl, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. scene where he's on the pole. Mm-hmm. The opera is their first date. <laughs> and, uh, the motorcycle chase is boy loses girl. <laughs> and, and then, and then the foot chase at the end is boy gets girl back again. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Okay. So now, so Tom in his mind is like making a romantic comedy and not a spy movie. And one of the things he said was, you know, at the end of the night, when a, when a, when a girl and a guy, a woman and a man, I'll be more yeah, Uh, they've, it, when she has become more comfortable with him, uh, and at the end of the night, she takes her shoes off, you know, and he, we always had this idea and it was quite literal that he was going to walk her back to her hotel room. And, and we had written this scene. That he walked her back to her hotel, and she was walking just carrying her shoes in her hand. It was before the opera house. It was before the rooftop. And there was this moment where he he brought her back to her room and said goodnight to her, and she was carrying her shoes. Hmm. Well, when the scene started to come together, he was like, he still had that in his mind. And I'm like, we're shooting this action scene, and you're running, and you're getting out of here. It's like, I don't have time for the shoes. And he was like, shoes are essential. (laughs) The shoes are essential. It's part of the date. We're using... Iconography: These 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 broad images of a guy and a girl on a date, and infusing them in this action scene. She's got to take her shoes off. So we had to design special shoes that Tom could just slip off. Women's footwear does not <laughs> function that way. If it did, you just fall right out of the shoes. And Rebecca then had to run in those shoes, which was pretty impressive. You know the old thing about hmm. everything uh, everything Fred Astaire did. Ginger Rogers had to do backwards in high heels. <laughs> You know, Rebecca had to do all that stuff on her heels. Um, so so then, of course, she takes the shoes off and then doesn't have an opportunity to put them back on and is carrying them when she walks in to see Solomon Lane. We didn't even think about the other scene, the first scene in the movie, when she walks in and has this whole fight scene. She had these – I Tom had suggested the line of nice shoes, like that he would f- say something flattering to her. Mm. So, of course, now the shoes became part of the costume. Then we're there on the day going, wait a minute, she's going to be doing all this fighting. She's been training in her bare feet. Now she's wearing heels. What do we do with the shoes? Mm. So Tom and I created this contrivance whereby she would slip the shoes off and undo a button and roll up her sleeves. And, you're kind of, and it was Ethan looking at her like, where is this going? Like, what's happening? In this? It was all built around, we just got to get the shoes out of the way because in a minute she's going to be <laughs> kicking people's ass. <laughs> So we never thought about the two scenes together. Mm. We never thought about them as a continuity
2: Mm.
1: or that it was a thing. They were in, in the one case, it was clearly a, an emotional subtext. And in another case, it was just a practical solution to a physical problem. And then that other movie came out and that became a meme on the, on the internet. It became really crazy. And I actually felt terrible for them and i know you can say you know don't feel too bad the movie made a trillion dollars (laughs) quite a lot yeah if it doesn't matter when you when you're working that hard on something and you know it i i would say it's even worse the more successful a movie is that one thing just it takes that it takes the fun of what is what could potentially be the most successful movie at least financially that could ever hope to make Mm. and and there are people sort of dinging it for for something that is deemed that is deemed sexist or 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 insensitive when Mm. in reality it was like you know i had to worry about a million other things there were so many other giant technical things that that director had to have been dealing with but Mm -hmm. i'm sure that never ever would have occurred to him in a million years and we were the unfortunate I, I feel we were the unfair benefactors of that, and there was at one point a, a suggestion to exploit that. Oh, okay. There was going to be sort of a gag. It was like a, like a counter meme, and I there were two things at worked there. The first was I was like, "That's just twisting a knife. That's yeah, going to look yeah. like you're crowing." And the one thing that I've learned in life, it's the thing I teach my children. It's the thing, and it's the thing I talk about in business all the time. Never do anything to affect a result. You do something because you want to do it or because you have to do it. Mm -hmm. Not because you think it will cause something else to happen.
3: Okay. Yeah.
1: Look at any extremist in history. They always end up achieving the exact opposite of what they set out to do. (laughs) They kill a whole bunch of people and then and they completely subvert their own philosophy. Yeah. Um it's 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 you that's no different than hoping you know hope is not a strategy mm. uh and that was just something that was sure the internet will never go where you want them to go the internet is going to go right for your jugular you know it's it's it's, it's Wiley e. coyote he releases all the 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 the, the 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 wasps to to kill the roadrunner and of course they turn around and just get him uh, it, And it just felt to me like it was too... It was just asking for trouble. It was just mm. a bad, bad place to go.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned there that when you first went to talk to the Paramount Marketing Department and they showed you all the, the various materials over the years, you'd looked at women in previous Mission Impossible movies and you'd get out of cars and their dresses would mm-hmm. have massive slits in them and you wanted to avoid that. Yes. But ultimately, of course, in the opera sequence... You didn't. Uh.
1: And yes, and what happened was I was like adamant that that was not going to be the case. My brother Doug, who's a technical advisor, who's a Navy SEAL, was working with Rebecca with her rifle. And we were talking about what the position would be. And we had some semblance of an idea of what the set was going to look like. And Doug said, well, actually, what you would do to, to balance the rifle, you wouldn't rest it on the lattice. Because you want to actually stand back from it. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be visible. So you would go bone on bone. And we, we can, you know, so we, we then decided to, right then, the shelf that needed to be there was immediately drawn up. <laughs> and we were using a table. And he said, so just put your leg up on the table. She put her leg up. She rested her elbow. She was wearing sweatpants and a t shirt. And Cruz and I just looked at her do that. And I immediately turned to my assistant and said, Get Joanna Johnson down here, and tell her we got to redesign the dress. Uh, and that's and of course once she did that, we had to put the slit in the dress to accommodate that yeah. specific uh, specific position. And then of course from that moment, everything became about her legs. Yeah, her fighting style became about her legs, and it be- it became this. This, uh, it, it sort of took on a life
0: of its own. So that informed the other scene later on, where she takes a guy out in front of uh, in front of Lane and.
1: Yes. Yeah. Others. Yes. Yeah. And it, it all just comes down to the same thing. Anytime we created a rule, we ended up breaking the rule. Mm. Uh, let's
0: talk very briefly about the opera scene because sure. yeah, at, at some point when we, I think we're going longer than the actual film, <laughs> which means we'll break the we should, internet. We should probably Yeah, the um, The opera scene itself uh, is is fantastic, and that was the centerpiece of the movie for you in, in a way. I mean, it, it moved ultimately, uh, it became essentially the first big. Yes. Centerpiece.
1: Yes. Um, it was, it, it was the one sequence, uh, in which I had ironically the most confidence going in
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the least confidence coming out. <laughs> uh, all the other sequences I was terrified of and, did not know how they were going to work for whatever reason, the, you know, budget cuts and all sorts of other things. So you could, you never had a firm footing. The opera, I knew I had this ending and the way the ending came about something I, I quite incorrectly have not talked about in other interviews. Uh, we, we had a, uh, uh, we had Ricky J as a consultant wow. early on Ricky J and his partner. And I was, I was having periodic conversations with him, which are fascinating in and of themselves, (laughs) because I was thinking about stuff about cons and tricks, and because we were really determined to have some sort of a a switcheroo and a a long con in the movie. And I was describing this opera sequence to Ricky, the, the very early stages of it, and Ricky said, well, what we think would be cool is if the villain found a way to trick Ethan into killing the guy that ethan was trying to save and it was very much like the sasha Gervasi idea of blow up the record store yeah yeah i said no i can't do that because i don't know how we can ever recover from that but you've given me a great idea which is that ethan chooses to shoot the chancellor to take him out of harm's way
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that was a microcosmic if that's a word uh version of ending of the usual suspects i came up with the ending of the movie and i knew i've got this thing to write to Mm
2: -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. and 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 as long as i never lose sense of that this will always work i knew i had that punchline and when i and i knew as soon as i did that that i thought well what makes that interesting what makes that interesting is he's got a a rifle with one bullet there are two potential shooters what would force Ethan to shoot the guy if he only had one bullet, had to make that bullet work? And you can see the entire sequence working its way backwards from that
3: oh, yeah, decision. Yeah, you yeah. give
1: me an ending and I'll, and I'll I'll get you there. What I didn't know was where was Benji, how, how those lattices were working, and the, the, the trestles, rather, that they were sitting on. And all of that stuff was our throwing stuff into the sequence. It was like, well, now there's this trestle they're fighting on. Wouldn't it be cool if the trestle was moving up and down? What's causing the trestle to move it up and down? Is there, a na- is there a cause and effect? Are you in the audience and seeing the lights changing? Are other people aware? And I said, no, I didn't want other people to be aware. I wanted this to be sort of clandestine. I yeah, wanted it to yeah. be the sense of you go to a play and this could be happening backstage at the play yeah. and you'd never be aware yeah. until the very last minute. So, So that's all of that. That sort of created that story structure. And then the budget of that sequence became enormous because we had to build the entire backstage of the Vienna Opera, which behooved us to then build the stage and the front, the boxes, the front rows. So even though we were shooting in the opera house for plates and things, we were only in there for one night.
3: <laughs> wow.
1: Everything else we built on a stage, this big space called LH2 uh, and shot plates. And then we were on the roof of the opera house accommodating Tom's thing, which was yeah, I can't run out the back door. This is Mission Impossible. we got to go off the roof. So now we were on the roof of the opera and in LH2 and actually spending very little time in the auditorium itself. And the budget of this sequence was enormous. It was the biggest sequence in the entire film. And I was being urged by certain parties to cut it entirely.
0: Oh, the, the entire sequence.
1: Yes. And people sort of, they just, opera, the word opera was really bugging them. They were concerned that, and and. And I was being—it t- was like you know, oh, Quantum of Solace did an opera sequence. All anybody's going to be thinking about is that sequence. And I was like, eh, this is going to be a different sequence. And um, and so I was—I was being urged to take it out. And Cruise was adamant. He was like, this will be the signature sequence of the movie. Yeah. He said, "Taurus is going to be cool. Car chase is going to be cool. This is going to be the thing that makes it unique. Don't change it. Don't compromise. Stick with it." And so. We then had to stage an entire opera because we were shooting everything for real. We weren't, we, we talked about doing green screen on the floor and shooting a plate of the opera, and we decided early on, no, we're gonna do this 60 feet off the floor, we're gonna shoot it all practically, it's all gonna be in camera. That became an enormous headache. And then getting the music synchronized with the action, when no matter how carefully you plan it, and we didn't have time to, <laughs> you're going to run into problems with the timing of the music versus the timing of the action. Yeah. And Joe Kramer came and supervised the opera and said, it doesn't matter. Just shoot the fight, shoot the opera. You're going to cut the opera any way you want. We're just going to record music later. So just don't even think about it. And of course I thought about it all the time. I was sweating it. And Joe just kept saying it, dude, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And when Eddie and I got in the cutting room it. It was mattering to us, and it was only when I let all that go and followed Joe's note, again, letting go of the rules. We started to bring in other music from the opera. We started to, and we started to mix it and bar, borrow things from different chunks of the opera where that wasn't even happening. Yeah. And really created our own version of Turandot that underscored the action. We extended things. We compressed things. We manipulated all of that music. It freed us up editorially to do what we ultimately did. Mm. And there was a moment early on where I really felt like I had failed, that I had that I had pushed for this sequence and that the sequence was never going to work. Uh, and And Eddie Hamilton was the one who really just kept saying he was like, it's gonna be good. Don't worry about it. It's gonna be great. He did the same thing with the motorcycle chase. He just kept telling me, what you're shooting is right. Just trust your instincts. Just go with it. Because there are just times when you're making movies this big, especially when the plan is constantly changing underneath you, where you just you're you're existing solely on faith.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and 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 I gotta say, Eddie and Joe really supported me, and Tom supported me throughout that entire thing, and it it uh, and it it worked. It paid off. I was immensely proud of it. I I, I said to myself, walking away from it. Whatever happens to the movie, however it performs, because things are always beyond your control, whatever happens, I have I have this sequence. I have this one thing that I've
0: done. It's so important, and the, and the choice of uh, Turandot as well, uh, of Ness and Dorma, which which threads its way through the movie. I mean, we, we meet Ilse for the first time, and you hear little strains, and it's very much linked... Yes. To her character, um, and it runs all the way through Joe's uh, score as well. Uh, why that opera in particular?
1: Well, I, uh, it happened to be the opera that they were performing at the E and O when I went to scout my first opera house, and I was walking around backstage, and there were these big, garish Chinese masks with blood coming out of them—you know, these red streamers to represent blood coming out of their mouths—and I loved the the uh, the the idea of an Italian opera set in China. <laughs> in an, an Austrian opera house, uh, it just it seemed so incongruous and crazy to me. And there is a theme running through that sequence of vanishing empires. There's mm-hmm. all of this Egyptian iconography. There's ancient China. Uh, you're in Austria, uh, in mm-hmm. Vienna, and the idea of the the, the the idea of the Roman iconography of the music. Uh, This whole idea, very, very, very subtly running through it. It's not anything anybody's ever going to pick up. But for me, it spoke to what Solomon Lane was all, all Mm -hmm. about. It's interesting. That's a, that's a thing that I, uh, that I, that I tried not to respond to. And I found so funny when the movie came out. The movie was in certain, certain critical circles dismissed as not being about anything. Mm -hmm. And yet there's all of this stuff. Running through the movie, having to do with the symbolism of that opera, but also stuff about the intelligence community and the the, the bigger, broader world view mm-hmm. statements that we were making throughout the film. That I was so thrilled to see film geeks on social media picking up on, and I just thought I I, I just really enjoyed that. I thought that that was that was really great. That there were people being so highbrow about it. Uh, and sort of ding the movie for not being about anything, and then, <laughs> and then the people that for whom I had really this time just buried it and made it solely for myself, yeah, they were they were picking it out. It was all a response to Reacher of my trying to get all that stuff in there, and yeah. and people just ignoring it, you
0: know. Absolutely. Um. So you, uh, you, at one point you were going to try to do Reacher first, but that Reacher two, yes, first, but that obviously unless you clone yourself that's something that could not happen yeah there something was just like there
1: was just no time by the time you know it it became evident that the market would support a sequel we were mm. down the road on mission and then we knew well if we waited for me to finish mission Reacher wasn't gonna come out till the next calendar year at which point I just said look don't wait for me you gotta yeah. you gotta go and uh, and I was thrilled when Tom uh, and Don Granger approached Ed's wick Ed is the first person who hired me after usual suspects went out as a writing sample. So I've known Ed since the very, very beginning of my career. And I found myself in the very unusual position of now being the producer on Ed's, uh, you know, and reading Ed's script. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell Ed. Like Ed's been telling me what to do. (laughs) I don't know. It's great, Ed. It's good. Uh, and the script is fantastic. And the the cast is great. And, uh, I, I think, uh, both fans of the film and the, the franchise are going to be very, very happy. Very, very quickly. I know we're talking about mission, but,
0: uh, why never go back? Why go from book nine to book 18?
1: I can't answer that without spoilers that are not my spoils <laughs> to spoil, but it's, it's strictly has to do with the, uh, the, the, the dimension, another dimension of Reacher's character mm-hmm. worth exploring. And anybody who reads the book will understand. Mm-hmm. Exactly what that means. And what Ed and Marshall and Tom and Don have all done with that is is really great. I was I, I would have been terrified to go there. I'm I'm a different kind of filmmaker from Ed entirely, and I'm I'm far too I'm far too much a brutalist and not in touch with my emotions the way Ed is. <laughs> uh, and and would have just taken that in the wrong direction entirely. <laughs> Uh, and, and what, what they've done is, is really great. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a Jack Reacher movie, but a very different Jack Reacher movie.
0: Intriguing, intriguing. Uh, some very last quick fire questions. One about the, uh, a couple about the opera. Uh, Benji wins tickets, which is obviously yes. a ruse by Ethan. Yes. But Benji seems to have actually le- legitimately entered a competition. Has he done so? Because he, he's won tickets. He does at no point does he question the fact yeah. that he's won tickets to a competition that he hasn't entered.
1: There was, miles of dialogue about that very thing <laughs> that he'd entered a contest that he had you know and that he had rigged a computer so that he was you know it was like he was like the nerd out of real genius who who eventually okay. wins that whole line. Yeah. and he had a whole scene with with uh jang jing chu the, the woman who is the oh yeah doing yeah. the lie detector
2: mm-hmm.
1: we had cast in the film originally not knowing where that role was going and we had a whole idea that she was going to come back in the third act and there was a relationship between her and simon and she had extraordinary presence by the way she was fantastic and unfortunately we never could make that ending fit and and then of course at that when the movie was two hours and 20 minutes long that was one of the first scenes to go and in it he talks about his love of opera and it gives gives you a better sense of all of that and the lesson that I just learned was nobody's listening. <laughs> calling the crap out of the movie, and you just y- yeah, probably you write maybe something. More importantly, he gets two tickets. Yes, and he doesn't bring a date. And I had written a line uh-huh. where he, as he's coming up the subway, up up the subway to the opera house, he said, "How did you know I wouldn't bring a date?" And Ethan said, "Come on, Benji, it's opera." And Tom, it was really funny. Tom took particular umbrage to the line. Really? Yeah. And I was like, it's, it's a joke. And he said, yeah, but you know what? It's like, don't insult the opera, man. <laughs> and I was like, really? Cool. And he goes, no, he goes, I, he goes, this is like really, he said, this is like, this is this really coming. It's like, don't belittle it. He was like, don't dig on the opera. He's like, you're making the scene that sort of celebrates the opera. Mm-hmm. Don't like bash on it. Right before you're going into it. He was like, embrace it. Just meet Hannah." He goes, it just sounds a little mean-spirited.
3: Yeah.
1: And I was like, yeah, all right. So I cut the line. And then, of course, what grew out of that was the exchange that ultimately was, you know, at least you could give me something more dramatic. We're covert operatives. You want mm-hmm. drama? Go to the opera. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm mean, going to give it a it much more, it, it was an expensive line as opposed to a reductive Yeah. Line. And it's, 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 he's, he's got very, very good instincts that way. And he's very, uh, it's funny. You see, you see in Tom, there is just every now and again, there will be, we'll be talking about a movie and he'll be like, that movie's mean. It's just mean. (laughs) And you look at the movie again, you're like, it is mean. It's just mean. And he just doesn't, he doesn't like mean. He's got, he's got a really dark sense of humor and we love, I mean, nobody loves more the moment in Jack Reacher where he beats one guy to death with the other guy's head—he just has the time of his life doing that. But there's a difference between brutal and mean. <laughs> and Tom really loves brutal; he doesn't like
0: mean. Isn't it mean to indicate that Benji uh, leads a, a lonely and solitary life where he can't just call up a woman and say, "Let's go to Let's go to Vienna for a couple of days"?
1: It's well, it, and there was a whole other story, yeah, about how Ethan got that message. Okay that Ethan ends up getting... There's a little thing where he's playing the computer game at his desk. Mm -hmm. He goes home that night after having been interrogated. He goes home to his lonely little apartment in his electric BMW that we had to (laughs) do product placement. And he goes into his apartment, which is completely spare and barren. There's an empty fishbowl. Oh, my God. And... All he has is this kick ass home entertainment system. Yeah. That's just dominates one end of the room. And on and outside his door is uh, the new, the latest version of whatever video game, which product placement eventually dictated was Halo 5. And he sticks it in and he's play and you, you see him like wondering what it is because he didn't order it. And he puts it in and he's kind of like nothing's happened. And then you do a time cut and he's just playing halo and he's like you know 48 levels into it and suddenly he gets to a certain level and it stops and it's a message from ethan <laughs> and this was good evening mr dunn okay. and he gets this message from benji and of course benji's like stops and he's like very quickly writing down what ethan is saying and he's got you know and of course tom reads it and he goes he's a spy man he wouldn't write it down like you memorize it <laughs> and of course it says this message will self-destruct in five seconds and benji is sitting there like oh my god what do i do and not paying attention to the fact that it's counting down and it only realizes when it gets to one, he's like, Oh my God. He rushes to stop and it wastes his entire, <laughs> his entire sound system. That's just not mission. It's yeah. like, it's this broad, sort yeah. of very comedic. And Don Granger loved it. And Don Granger was like, I love it. And we, but we kept looking at it and saying, funny or not, we have to go so far out of our way to get this information in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Cruz is a real stickler for. You can shortcut so much in a Mission Impossible movie that you can't do other places. There are just, there are places where the audience says, no, it must be rational. And there are places where the audience is saying, just give me the information and get to Morocco. (laughs) And he's very, 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 uh, astute at knowing one from the other. I will cut too deep or I'll go too wide and he'll just be there all the time going, nope, they don't need to know it. They just don't need to know why. Nobody cares about the tickets. Just go. Just get to Vienna.
0: Well, this might be another one like this. Uh, this is a reader question. Now we got yeah. one from Matt Turner, Bristol. Uh, he says, Hi, Empire. Love the film. My dad pointed out one thing when we were watching it that perhaps uh, Chris can answer. Benji arrives at the opera by tube. He then talks to Ethan Fire Radio but never meets him until he turns up outside the opera house in a car to help uh, Ethan and Ilsa escape. Where did Benji get the car?
1: Darn good question. Excellent question. I'm glad he asked um he stole the car but here's the really interesting part about the car that he stole okay the car that he stole has bulletproof glass <laughs> um and is is a is impervious to bullets the reason why that is is we were not allowed we were not allowed to show the bmw i don't know if i'm in violation of anything by telling you this, we couldn't show the BMW getting shot to pieces. Okay. The BMW didn't want their new seven series being shot to pieces in the in the uh, in the movie, so I couldn't blow the back window out. In my mind, Benji just stole a car and pulled up, but then of course the car he stole seems to have been imbued with some IMF technology, and we really sweated it. And I eventually cut around it. And what you see, you you'll notice that once the shooting starts. A little bit of broken glass kind of flies into the frame over Rebecca's shoulder. You're close on Ethan when the shooting starts, and you never really get a good look at the car again <laughs> after that. That was kind of our compromise. To it. these are the things you have to do when you're making these movies, guys. You've <laughs> got to be thinking about, you know, your 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 product placement. And there and there was, it, I read the stuff on the internet, and I shouldn't. There were people who just like, oh, it's one long BMW ad, and it's this. Like, oh, look at all the product placement in the movie. Let me tell you something about product placement. Product placement is the difference between there being an opera and not being an opera. And, or more importantly, there being an opera that is the sequence you saw and being an opera with what I could get in the time that I had allotted. Product placement allowed me, gave me the resources to go back and pick up the inserts that really hold that sequence together.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, product placement is what allows me to destroy 12 BMW M3s, and 25 1,000 RRs and make the motorcycle sequence that we made. <laughs> so when you're looking at stuff and going, oh, my God, it's like one big commercial for BMW. It's like, thank you, BMW. It's also <laughs> one kick-ass car chase that would have cost us trillions of dollars if you didn't have BMW going, sure, take 12 of our cars and and send them back as scrap metal <laughs> I need more product placement in my life. That's what. That's what yeah, I need. Absolutely, hate. absolutely. Uh,
0: Gregorian Tutan asks. Uh, sorry, if I pronounced your name really, really badly. Uh, during the shooting of the listening booth sequence in the final offer, uh, did Tom know exactly what the fake IMF message was, or had you scripted it at that point?
1: We had scripted it, and it was my voice up until very, very late in the process. When we went back and got Teddy Newton,
0: mm-hmm.
1: whose voice you will recognise from. Not only Ghost Protocol, but Mm -hmm. you'll recognize him from The Incredibles. He's the Would you like a mimosa? He's a Brad. (laughs) He's a Brad Bird, uh, acolyte, an animator in his own right, a very good filmmaker. And I wanted to have some continuity from Ghost Protocol, and I liked that Teddy could do a voice that almost sounded like AI. Mm -hmm. You know, there's Mm -hmm. something sort of uh, sort of otherworldly to his delivery. And Tom really liked my doing a cameo in the movie before I got Teddy. He was like, I really like it, stick with your voice. And we screened the movie for all of the visual effects group when we were still working on it. And I asked, I was like, any notes, any anything? And one guy in the back row, he said, yes. And he had this accent. He was this really, really nice guy. And he said, the one note I had is the scene in the record booth was very boring. The voice of the man speaking was just very boring, and I just I found it so boring. And he said "boring" <laughs> about fifteen times in this in this course of a minute. And I said, um, I said, thank you for that note. We're going to rectify that. And just so you know, that voice is big <laughs> And it killed the room. Just laughed at this poor guy, and he was absolutely mortified. And for the rest of the movie, while he was working on the film, they tortured him. Uh, and and of course, when they. They came in the next day to tell me. They said, yeah, everybody was everybody was giving him shit for saying that. I said, with a straight face, I said, he's still on the movie? <laughs> what? I don't want to hear that guy again. I don't want to uh, see him again.
0: That guy's got to eat. Yes. He's got to eat. He's got a family. Uh, i got a couple of questions, very quick fire, from Lucien Wa Daly, uh, who asks, what Hitchcock film did you take the most inspiration from when uh, writing the movie?
1: was well, the one that... that Tom and I talk about two Hitchcock films obsessively, uh, neither of which is The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, one is Rebecca. Uh-huh. I mean, sorry, not Rebecca, um, Notorious. Okay. Uh, and the other is, um, North by Northwest. And mm-hmm. in fact, Tom's suit when he's on the side of the A400 is taken directly from Cary Grant in North by Northwest, which was Tom's idea. I didn't even see it until the day he showed up and I was like, where have I seen that suit before? <laughs> And, you know, we're always looking at the, the romance between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman in uh, Notorious mm. and the structure of North by Northwest mm. and the 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 efficiency, the ruthless efficiency with which Hitchcock sets things up, brings in characters for information and eliminates them. For example, the mother in North by Northwest mm-hmm. goes with Cary Grant to the hotel room only so that he can explain why he's in that room. And when he leaves her on that elevator, you never see her again. She's just (laughs) out of the movie. And there's not, I don't think they even really mention her mother yet, uh, much, except, maybe he mentions her in passing at one point. But the point is the mother's in the movie only when she needs to be in the movie and not in it. And so I look at the efficiency of that and the freedom with which Ernest Lehman and Hitchcock approached that plot. Uh, And the duplicity of Eva Marie Saint within that movie was very influential on, on Ilsa. The interesting thing is, the man who knew too much, which is the sequence that is most referenced in describing the opera, was not an influence on the opera. I had actually not seen that sequence in the man who knew too much. I had seen Martin Scorsese's Key to Reserva, uh-huh. which uh-huh. is inspired by the man who knew too much, the yeah. birds, the uh, any number of Hitchcock films, yeah Saboteur. There's shots throughout it that are all taken from from Hitchcock. And that I used as my sort of proof of concept. I presented that to Tom in the studio and all the producers and said, this is what I think an opera sequence could be. This is kind of this elegant idea of what I think it could be. And if you've never seen The Key to Reserve*, you should go check it out. It's a really fun thing. Then when I watched The Man Who Knew Too Much and saw the sash and the guy getting shot in the arm, and this is sincere, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I did not watch it until before then. I thought, oh my God, oh, this is so horrible. And then I thought, ah, you know what? I ripped something off. <laughs> so it's like, whatever. And, you know, it's, uh, anyway. So uh, th- those were, those were the big, the big. Influences.
0: My absolute favorite, uh, non-reference in the film. I was on IMDb today looking at, uh, trivia for the film and, uh, someone has written, uh, a reference in the movie is at one point, Alec Baldwin says, uh, Hunt is both arsonist and fireman. This is a reference to the 1992 film Backdraft, in which Ali Baldwin's brother, Billy Baldwin, plays a fireman.
1: <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> That's insane. You need, whoever wrote that <laughs> needs to just go to sleep for 12 hours without any, whatever amphetamines that you're taking. No, uh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. Sasha Gervasi, uh, again, uh, my, my dear friend, mm. He was describing a particular film executive who I will not name, <laughs> and in in reference to the scene, he goes, "It's like this guy's name here." Yeah, he, he It was this guy that just loved to stir up shit so that he could then come in and fix it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he and 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 he had heard him once described by someone else as arsonist and fireman. So that's what it is. The other interesting Easter egg that's not an Easter egg. Okay, Benji's gum on the phone is not a, an inside reference to the red light green light gum and mission impossible one okay that's literally simon pegg was chewing gum and went, <laughs> and stuck it on the phone and we thought oh that was funny and so we shot the insert and did that uh the rabbit's foot is the key ring a, a reference yes the key okay. ring is a reference to the rabbit's foot in mission three that was tom thinking it would be funny to to put that on there. Okay. Are He's we... haunted by the ghost of the rabbit's foot, as there were all these people going, "What is the rabbit's foot?" And they were, you know, the focus groups were never satisfied, and and he learned a very valuable lesson to never leave the mystery, yeah, open ended again. And that, uh, and so that was our that was our little um, our little homage.
0: To I think Simon still has bad uh, nightmares about the exposition he had to deliver about Horrible. the rabbit's
1: foot. Horrible. Well, now interesting. Here's here's another at the uh, at the, when Tom is sitting down to confront lane at the end of the movie talking to benji
2: mm-hmm.
1: we had four days to shoot that sequence mm-hmm. and on the first day i didn't know what the sequence was i showed up at work <laughs> i showed up at work and said i have figured it out let's all workshop me myself tom rebecca and benji uh, simon all sat down figured out what the scene was and i said great we obviously can't shoot that tonight because i need to write it tomorrow before yeah. we come in tomorrow night so tonight we're going to get Tom to the table, and tomorrow night we're going to shoot all that dialogue, which I'm going to write tomorrow afternoon. So I wrote all of that stuff, brought it to work the next day. Tom read it; he was like, "Love it, it's perfect." Gave me like two little notes, and then said, "There's no way I can learn this dialogue in the next hour." So we wrote on an index card about the size of a about the size of my iPhone six plus. This is a pretty large. Yeah wrote it on a card, and Simon Pegg held it in front of his face like a teleprompter. So he held it in front of the right side of his face while the camera was over his left shoulder oh my God. and knew Tom's lines so that he knew when he had to raise the card like a teleprompter. Because <laughs> if you just left it, Tom's eyeline would be getting lower and lower as he read. Yeah. So Simon had to be raising the card like this and know his own dialogue, which was considerable. Uh, and, we d- and we did it all. We did it all. And they're all reading. And Rebecca Ferguson was so excited to have only one line in the entire scene. <laughs> it was the first time I've heard an actor just go, awesome. I don't want anything else to say. This is great. This is plenty for me to learn. Thank you.
0: Amazing. Uh, we have a question from a name you might know, Brian Koppelman. Yes. Uh, who uh, tweeted in, for years and years, I've wanted to know if Chris's 10 pages a day first draft story was true and if he still does it.
1: Uh, it, it was, and it can still be, um, it all depends. If I, if I know what I'm writing, uh, you know, I really know I'm in the zone. I know that what I'm doing is right when I'm doing it. Uh, recently, uh, I did a, I did a, I I did some rewrite work on a movie and rewrote, uh, the first 80 pages of the script in, you know, in, in about two weeks. Wow. Um, because the way ahead was very clear and and structurally it was all there it was just you know doing character stuff and feeling your right way through it uh, you know the hard stuff is when i don't know the structure and i'm not uh, i'm i'm better at sorting out structure than i am at creating it you know knowing oh and then he goes here and does this it's like if i don't have the ending to write to i'm lost and in, mm. in the on the project i was working on the ending was was very very clear some, somebody asked me once, "What's the what's the average time it takes you to write a screenplay?" And I said, "Anywhere between five days and never." <laughs> I wrote the way of the gun in five days, and I never finished the script I wrote for heads So
0: <laughs> there you go. So that that ten pages a day first draft story was that in relation to uh, suspects, or was that was that just something oh suspects? That you did back in the day? Suspects
1: was, that... was two weeks for first draft. Way of the gun was five days. Okay. Um, Jack Reacher was. I wrote for about two weeks and then hit a, I hit a wall when we got to the point where you had to explain the plot of the movie. I couldn't yeah. have Jack Reacher explain one more thing to <laughs> Helen. I just couldn't. And I didn't have a way around it. And so I walked away. I went off and worked on another movie. I think it was Wolverine. Mm-hmm. And I came back and realized, oh, it's so simple. Reacher doesn't explain it to Helen. Helen just figures it out. Yeah, yeah. And the fun of the scene was then she goes to tell someone and you don't know who she's telling.
3: Yes.
1: Now, of course, where I screwed myself is that this is all vital information. And when you're not on her face, you're not listening to her. Yeah. So that whole camera move, all anybody's doing is going, who's she talking to?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: they're not listening to the plot of the movie. And, it, and the test audience has just roasted us. <laughs> it was like no matter how explicit you made that information, it was in a place where the audience just didn't listen to it.
0: Um. Uh, Well, hopefully that's answered Brian's uh, question. Brian's someone I want to get in the podcast as well one day, if he ever comes over. He's great. I
1: love his little uh, uh, six-second... Screenwriting tips, yeah. Screenwriting tips. Fantastic.
0: He's also very good in Periscope as well, and uh, looking forward to Billions when that comes out uh, next year as well. Uh, Just a couple more. Um, uh, Adam Dav, 87, asks... uh, Will it go, Chris? I promise. No, no, uh, no, no, I'm fine. We haven't locked the door. I'm Um, thinking about you. No, no, I'm I'm good. I'm good. You have uh, a scene with both uh, Simon McBurney and Tom Hollander are you a fan of the sitcom Rev?
1: I am. I have not seen the season in which Simon McBurney enters the show. Ah, okay. So when they were there, I didn't even put two and two together.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and then just a couple of quick ones from uh, Lucy and Daly again. again. Uh, who'd win in the fight, Hunt or Reacher?
1: Uh, they were, they're both too smart to ever
0: start <laughs> a fight. Did you play the music of Bernard
1: Herrmann when you were writing the screenplay? Um, yes, one piece in particular which I'm not going to say what it is for reasons that for reasons that will eventually reveal them.
0: Okay, intriguing. And do you feel the film the film was obviously pulled forward very publicly. It was coming out in mm-hmm. December after The Force Awakens. Yes. It was brought forward uh, to July. If you had kept that December release date, would it be a markedly different film?
1: No. No. Uh no, we would have finished exactly when we finished. It would have been the same it would have been the same movie. And I have to be honest, now I wouldn't be as nervous about it coming out then. I mean, I still would be. I think anything that comes out in December is going to get destroyed by, <laughs> by the Death Star. Um, but uh, no, I, I was, uh, you know, then when it was an unknown, Yeah, we were like, you know, crazy. We just, we got to get out of the path of that thing. Yeah. And, and now with some distance from the movie, I feel like I the year going into the year, going into 2015, it was like, what was the hurricane that came after Sandy? The one nobody can remember? I cannot remember. But remember, it was going to destroy yeah. the entire East Coast. And yeah. then it was like, it rained for 15 minutes. <laughs> that was 2015. Everybody was saying, this is going to be the biggest, most competitive year ever. And every single movie is a juggernaut and it's going to destroy box office records. And sure enough, the, movie, the year came out and it's going to be a big year at the box office. But it's it kind of equalized. And there were movies people went to see and movies mm-hmm. people didn't go to see. And we were very fortunate to with all of that pressure to move to the date that was actually truly advantageous to us once that movie got through its first two weeks mm-hmm. it had such a clear run where there was not another movie like it that allowed the movie to just play and play and play and if you look at tom cruise movies uh throughout his career a lot of his most hugely successful movies were movies that opened moderately mm-hmm. and then just played for a really long time yeah
0: he's not the guy who opens a hundred million dollar you know movies don't open to those that sort of uh, level yeah he's a guy who starts around 50 60 and then it keeps, it keeps going. Yeah. yeah
1: and it just keeps going and it's and that's all a testament that's not by accident yeah. and that's that's less about tom the star and more about tom the filmmaker mm. and how particular he is about the kind of stories and he just if, if his movies his movies get out there and they find their audience they'll just they'll they'll play
0: uh, what what coming forward as well? you uh, meant was at one point you were going to open not just after Star Wars but also after Spectre. Yeah, and you came forward obviously and beat Spectre by a few months. And there are parallels. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen Spectre now. I did. Yeah, um, I saw it last night. Um, there are parallels. Uh, I would say plot-wise between the two. We've we've hinted at something that, uh, earlier on as well. Yes. Uh, a fairly big revelation. Um obviously everything is made in a bubble. Movies like this are made mm-hmm. in such a big bubble and you have no way of knowing what Sam Mendes is doing or what Matthew Vaughn's doing with Kingsman but, or Guy Ritchie with with The Man From U.N.C.L.E. But mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, were you, uh, do you try and put the feelers out? Were you aware that the plot of Spectre roughly in broad strokes was similar to the plot of Rogue Nation?
1: As a, you know, long-time avid fan of James Bond, when they said the word Spectre, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, fuck. This is just horrible. <laughs> cuz you knew what it was you knew specter was you you knew specter from all the way back on what is it diamonds are forever oh and, way, back, know, way, way back way back smurth and For all reasons, of that yeah, yeah. you knew specter was you know syndic the syndicate and specter are kind of and and more importantly you knew that however we knew because we were trying to determine what the syndicate was and that the math problem was so specific and the answers were so limited. I'm like, whether it's Purvis and Wade or John Logan or Jez Butterworth, whoever's been tasked, or all four of them together, whoever's been tasked with figuring out what Spectre is, is, they're crunching the same numbers we are. (laughs) They're going to come up with something right along those lines because the alternatives are absolutely silly (laughs) these are all very these are all very accomplished writers and 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 so i knew i was like this is gonna be there are only so many ways this story can play out yeah and i also knew you know that that the way the way bond works is bond is always made to reflect the time in which it's made it's always made to reflect current events and the way I would always approach something is to always do that with X-Men. When I sat down on X-Men, you know, it was during the AIDS epidemic. And I said, this Mm. is an allegory for for AIDS. Um, And when I sat down and looked at this, I said, you can't make a spy movie now Mm. without acknowledging how fucked up it is to be a spy. And, you know, and there was more of that in the movie. There was more self-reflection. There was more doubt. There's when, when, when Ethan presents the syndicate to Simon, the first thing he asks him is, do you ever have a crisis of faith? And Simon admits that he does. And he, and, and he, he voices that. He says, you know, do I, am, I, am I fighting for the right side? Is, is it worth risking my life for a world that doesn't seem to care? Yeah. And Ethan says, some of us come back from that, but not all. And then he turns the TV on and mm. it sort of tells you this is who those people are. That was all part of the stuff that the audience was just tuning out on. They weren't listening to it. They weren't reading the depth into it. But as we were doing that, we knew this is not, this is what, these are the dilemmas that this dilemma presents very naturally to story and character. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be doing the same thing. Yeah. It's just, it's the natural evolution of where this idea would go. And, and what I was surprised by, I mean, I knew I had a sense of what, Christoph Waltz was being set up to be. Yeah. Um, but then we heard his name and thought maybe that's not going to be. And then I watched the movie last night and went, oh, yep, that's exactly who <laughs> they're setting him up to be." Um, but it never occurred to us, of, you know, that, that, like I said, the only reason it came up came to us that our villain should live and that it should go on and be somebody who could even potentially return mm. was we just tried so many ways to kill him that weren't entertaining.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but he's still on the he's still in the board, as you say.
1: Yeah. Um, or Sean.
0: <laughs> Sorry, with, Sean. With his uh, 10 film option. 10 yeah. films now.
1: Let's talk with the 20. <laughs> that's, that's something
0: something like 20. Why not? 40 films.
1: Something like that. Uh, It'll be like baseball teams, you know, where they like trade him to Marvel. <laughs> Sean's wearing a cape. I'll kill you.
0: That would be amazing. I hate you, McCoy. That would be amazing. Chris McCourney, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we've broken, I don't know, we don't really have records in the Empire podcast for length, but we've broken it. I, pr- it I
1: promise you, if you put me in front of a microphone, I'll give you a half hour answer to every question. And we'll go <laughs> over. I just can't shut up. I apologize to everybody who's had to endure this podcast. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank Cheers. you. And that was Chris
0: McQuarrie and that's it for our Mission Impossible Rogue Nation Spoiler Special Podcast. Thank you for sticking with us all the way. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I enjoyed conducting the interview. Uh, We have a ton of podcast specials coming up in the rest of the year what's left of it including a farewell to peep show with creators Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong a Star Wars Force Awakens special of course and our review of the year always a popular way to end the year. And of course the regular Empire Podcast drops every Friday. Check us out if you haven't already done so. And if you can give us lovely reviews and ratings on iTunes, you know what? That would be nice too. Don't give us nasty reviews, please, because we're very sensitive souls deep inside. Okay, that's it for me. Until next time, thank you for listening. Goodbye.